For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we haven't talked about Afghanistan lately, but we need to. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. It's almost the one-year anniversary of the pullout of America and the other allies and the mess that Kabul became. A uh, friend of ours from over in India joining us. He has a great piece out in International Policy Digest. Pradamesh Yamul joining us from India. How are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Hello, I'm pretty well. Thank you for having me here. I'm thrilled to have you. Okay, let's just start because let's be adults here. Most of the world stopped paying attention right after the Kabul fall. fell. Everybody got upset. They were mad for about a week or two, and then everybody worldwide moved on. Pick up the story from there because for the people of Afghanistan, and Afghanistan's population doubled over the 20 years of the American war there. Pick the story up there. What what happened after that that kind of led us up to what's going on now a year later? So basically, after the fall of Kabul, the Taliban managed to take over most of Afghanistan. There was um, an attempt by members of the previous uh, democratic government, such as the vice president, Amrullah Saleh, and um, Ahmed Masood, uh, who was, I guess, a military commander. He was uh, son of the famous Ahmed Shah Masood. There was an attempt by them to put up resistance in the Panjshir Valley um in it's i think north of kabul as far as i remember and there was an attempt to put up resistance there which didn't last for too long you know they weren't that well supported they were support surrounded from all sides and um after that for the most part the taliban was able to take at least military control of the uh, country but what they haven't been able to form a government or an administration in the strictest sense they have formed a government a state they've appointed their leadership but there's been quite a quite an issue with the amount of control they can exert over the country and also how effectively they can govern uh, administer and um, enforce laws among other things one of the biggest problems they faced ever since they took kabul and took over afghanistan has been um an organization called isk or daesh k which is uh it is basically 
an affiliate of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq that we know so well. And it's the local affiliate of uh, ISIS called ISIS Khorasan province or Vilayat Khorasan. And they have basically, um, they were carrying out an insurgent and terrorist campaign even against the previous democratic government. But they've kind of used the chaos that came with um, the taking of Kabul and you know, the Taliban trying to form a new state, new government to exert their control over the, most of the country. They've used that chaos to um, exercise terror, basically. They've had they've had constant attacks on the Taliban, Taliban troops, Taliban police, and they've done constant um, terrorist attacks on civilian places. They've attacked mosques, they've attacked hospitals, they've attacked... Um, schools they've as recently as yesterday there was an uh not yesterday i'm sorry as recent as a few weeks ago or a month ago there was an attack on uh, gurudwara which is a sikh religious site in kabul where uh, an isis militant attempted to uh, kill a bunch of uh, peaceful worshippers basically and these attacks have been for the majority been focused like the terror attacks have been focused on civilians and have disproportionately affected the minority communities like the shia muslims and uh, sikhs and hindus in afghanistan and um isis k has kind of been unrelenting in their attacks on the taliban and the civilian population they've constantly kept up the pressure and they've used this chaos to kind of um form a stronghold of sorts in two major provinces in uh, northeastern Afghanistan, mainly Nangarhar and Kunar province, and um, a third called Nuristan, where they have a somewhat lesser presence. And these are high mountainous provinces, you know, hard to get. So they've basically stuck there and formed a kind of local base there. And ever since, they've constantly been attacking civilian sites, they've been attacking Taliban members, and they've been trying to sow as much chaos and create as much instability as they could. And basically, that's what's been going on. There have been major attacks. They've attacked, um, they've attacked Shiite mosques, they've attacked uh, Sikh religious sites, they've attacked hospitals. They were, I think they attacked uh, a maternal hospital, if I'm not wrong. They've also carried out very sophisticated for um for the region they've carried out very sophisticated terrorist attacks on um the afghan power grid they've attacked uh power electricity towers which resulted in blackouts for large portions of uh, afghanistan and they did this on a very strategic uh, time they did it close to the e holiday of eid and um basically they've been trying to sow as much chaos as possible if you uh, remember during the american pullout from afghanistan or the fall of kabul there was a suicide attack at kabul airport where uh, american servicemen died and you know 170 or so afghans died if i'm not wrong and uh, this attack was also carried out by isis khorasan so basically they have been attempting to uh, use the chaos and the I, i'd say position of instability that always comes with a new armed revolution taking control to basically advance their agenda and they've been attacking basically everyone in the region 
Now, on the outside observers, because we don't always pay real close attention to this in the West, especially in American media, when Americans aren't involved, people probably are wondering why are they fighting? There's some important differences between ISIS-K and the Taliban, though. The Taliban, of course, came out of the Pashtun nationalism, the tribal people. They were the original, um, the Mujahideen, if you're old enough to go all the way back to the Soviet era. Uh, for lack of a better way of explaining it, ISIS-K sees them more locally, and they see themselves as more of the international branch. There's some other ideological differences, though. Why is it a shooting blood for you? You call it a turf war for our Western parlance this is just going to be an internal thing, right? There's not going to be any detente here. There's not going to be a peace among them, right? Not likely. Because, well, for one, this is, I call it a turf war, because this conflict is not only ideological, but for some of them, it's personal. You see, ISIS Khorasan actually formed from a breakaway group of what, uh, of the organization that is Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan, which is basically the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, so two of the major leaders who formed ISIS-K, one of them was Hafiz Saeed Khan, who was a Pakistani from Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan, and another one, uh, I can't remember his name, but was a pretty high uh, Taliban leader, Afghan Taliban leader. So this isn't just ideological, but is also quite literally uh, the result of personal disputes within the leadership. Along with this, there is, of course, the fact that um, that basically both organizations are kind of going for the same core audience. They're, say, go, they're going to recruit the same core group of uh, radically inclined uh, people who are ready to fight. Along with that, this conflict also has its roots, uh, kind of, in the general conflict internationally among uh, jihadists that we see between al-Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State. The Islamic State broke away as a part of al-Qaeda and uh, they both claim to lead a worldwide Islamist movement. So it's partly because of partly because they're you know going for the same position. They're not going to have any form of detente because Islamic State claims itself to be a province, uh, Islamic State in Khorasan claims to be a province of um, the global Islamic Caliphate. They will have an Amir. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan also claims to have an Amir as their leader. You can't have two um, leaders in one place. And the, so there's not really as much of a scope for a detente especially because they also come from two relatively different streams of um islamic conservatism the taliban are deobandis which is an islamic uh, revivalist movement a fundamentalist movement that was founded in uh, colonial era india and uh, it has its roots much closer to pashtun ethnic um nationalism and their ethnic code called pashtun Wali. while um the Islamic State is Salafist, you know, they have their roots in the Middle East and they have a much more global outlook for one. And another thing is that um, the Islamic State is kind of a kind of an attraction for those Islamists in Afghanistan who are not Pashtuns like Tajiks, Uzbeks. We can see this especially because an organization called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan 
uh, merged with ISIS-K very early on because historically um, the Taliban has been a Pashtun-dominated organization, and when they ruled in the 90s, it was not a good time for a lot of non-Pashtun people in Afghanistan, and those memories still stand. And especially because the democratic government of Afghanistan was dominated by these ethnic groups, which are non-Pashtun. So there's a certain ethnic element to it in that a lot of people who share similar fundamentalist views probably would feel that um, ISIS might be more conductive to them. They might have a better place there than a somewhat nationalist, ethnically based movement like the Taliban. Yeah, I'm proud of Moshe Yomul joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get back into his article uh, at International Policy Digest, how the Taliban's doing actually running the country as opposed to just being the operational forces. A lot of bad news there. Also talk about the future Afghanistan update, what's been going on over there. Our friend Pat Yomul joining us on Herdtel. More right after this break. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Our friend Padmeshio Mu from over in India joining us. We're talking Afghanistan. Uh, my friend, you mentioned it in your article. We've linked to it, International Policy Digest. Make sure you read the whole article for yourself. Part of the problem with the Taliban is having now, and it was very predictable because we talked about it during the drawdown and the total chaos that that was when they took over Kabul. Um, they have to actually govern now. And they're not only actually having to govern but they're having to govern over a very different country than they used to govern before the American intervention. The population has doubled. The population is extremely young. The average age in Afghanistan is like mid-20s now. And there's still a country that is very, very strained on resources as it always has. And now all that American money is gone. This looked like a recipe for disaster for them to try to rule because they don't have any experience running a country. And that's pretty much how it's played out. And now with all these issues, like with ISIS-K, you've got a lot of people fighting over a dwindling amount of resources and a very, very stressed population, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you have you have a country that's been at war for pretty much 43 years now, continuously. You you also have a situation where the Taliban does not really have many international allies. They don't have access to international streams of funding. Any resources that the uh, former government had, the you know Ghani government, they're all frozen in international banks. The Taliban does not have a lot of money per se, and they don't exactly have yet the expertise to rule or administer a country as either. They've basically spent the last 20 years fighting a guerrilla war against uh, American and uh, Afghan security forces. And they they have never 
had even though they have held territory for quite a long time unlike a lot of other guerrilla um, movements they've never attempted to let's say form a local administration or a shadow administration in place they've in the war in afghanistan has been a constant you know hide and seek game between uh, allied forces uh, nato forces and between the taliban so that leaves a situation where the, the taliban have now won and a lot of them will be asking themselves okay what do we do now along with this there's also how do i say it there's also certain amounts of internal conflicts between the taliban there is of course the issue that there is the general taliban that um exists in afghanistan is not exactly a centralized leadership it's made up of a lot of local warlords local forces a lot of people who switched over to the taliban only in recent times when you know the wind started blowing the other way there's also the issue of a large block in the taliban is made up of the so-called haqqani network led by sirajuddin haqqani which is quite literally a, a whole separate organization within the taliban there's also an issue regarding um differences between the taliban political leadership which has been in doha and you know the one the ones that negotiated with the united states who signed the agreement and the actual on the ground you know military leaders and we don't know whether the military leaders would want to you know to the same line that the political leadership would the political leadership definitely wants to rule and administer in whatever way they see administration being but a lot of for people who have been at war um for longer than their whole lives it raises a question of how do you ease them into um a civilian peacetime administration uh in a country like afghanistan where conflict is so prolonged there's not much left to get money from there's not there's not mu there's not much uh sources of funding left for reconstructing a government along with this at least as of yet we have not seen the taliban try to moderate their stance on any of their major issues and um, this means that you know the international community is not going to help them that much either right and, um, things. i'm sorry I'm Padmesh, sorry. You're uh, joining us uh part of the reason they cannot get the international community though is not just their own brutality as predicted, they did the massive crackdown on girls and women. You addressed it in your article. Um, let's just be honest here. People that have spent years as guerrilla fighters, they have a rigid ideology when it comes to women and minority groups and other folks and other religious groups. They're really in a corner here that they're never going to really get international recognition unless they have some dramatical revolutionary change in how they do things. Is that still the stance because we saw the crackdown on women and girls in schools and all that? Is there any hint at all that they're ever going to change? Because I'm very skeptical that they will. I don't think so, honestly. And, you know, recent events have given us even more um, food for thought in, uh, on, in the sense that um, in around three days ago in Kabul, uh, there was an American drone strike that resulted in the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri who was the longtime leader of Al-Qaeda, the second most important person in Al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden. Now, one of the major factors in America signing a deal with the Taliban was that the Taliban promised in their Doha agreement in 2021 not to support Al-Qaeda, not to allow them presence in Afghanistan. And um, they've clearly broken that. 
So not only are their policies not conductive to an international, um, let's say, acceptance, not only have they broken an international agreement, now it's very clear that they were housing the most important Al-Qaeda leader in their, in their capital, nonetheless. And um, they have not denied it. They have, in fact, called this an American uh, attack on their sovereignty. And of course, you know, that's a different debate. But the, the point that comes here is that they've basically create, made themselves even less um, ideal as a partner in international eyes. And now that they've also been harboring the leader of probably world's most infam infamous terrorist group, it's just worse. Pratimish Yamel joining us. Let's let's talk big picture for just a second. We know what happened. We know what a mess Afghanistan is. Talk about the people of Afghanistan because this we just talked about it. The population has doubled. This generation didn't live under the Taliban previously, almost any of them. They are now. You ended your article on kind of a down note of like, you know, the real story here is this is a country that has suffered immensely and they're going to continue to suffer and they're going to have even more chaos. Is there any hope for Afghanistan at all right now? Because something like the Zahawi strike, that means even less America paying attention because obviously they had a network to make that happen. We They had to have, you know, some inroads. They're probably going to care even less now that you don't have something like that to go after. The world is not paying attention to this. We're one year removed from Cabal falling. You know, you can't find Afghanistan in the headlines. Are they just doomed to another couple decades of this mess? Is that where we're at with this? I mean, it's likely. Now, the issue with ISIS Khorasan is that the Taliban has been trying to deal with them. You know, they've been trying to deal with them in a military and uh, counterinsurgency sense. But the Taliban has been, for lack of better uh, phrasing, has been using an approach that can be described as, you know, every problem is a nail if you have a big enough hammer. And this has led to a lot of civilian casualties, a lot of... Um, let's say extrajudicial killings, a lot of collateral damage. And that's not how you run, an ins run a counterinsurgency. You know, the more innocents you kill, the more you give credence to the ISIS's claim that this is an illegitimate government or an illegitimate administration. While the Taliban, while ISIS has a very small presence, let's say territory-wise or uh, in terms of personnel, they've been conducting attacks widely beyond this uh, territorial presence they've been attacking they've been conducting regular attacks in kabul they've been conducting regular attacks everywhere and the more the taliban you know tries to deal with this with a blunt approach the more it's just going to worsen things and i don't know about uh, the next 30 years of conflict but this thing is going to rage for a while especially if you know uh, they don't get help from foreign actors and they haven't been able to in improve their relations with their neighbor neighbors either. You know, they've had uh, border clashes with Iran and we have seen how Iran res uh, responds to instability on their borders. You know, they have responded to instability on their borders in Iraq and Syria. We don't know what they would do in Afghanistan. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not really very bright for the future because while the Taliban has gained control over their country, they're not being able to um, 
exercise exercise the ability and uh, let's say power that a normal government does they're constantly having to deal with issues which if it was in a conventional state somewhere we'd see we just call it a failed state like so basically for the next at least five or ten years i see maybe this conflict simmering down a bit in five years or ten years but it's very rough because isis has shown that you can take their territory you can kill their militants they'll just have more and the thing is they don't need a lot of people to carry out the, the kind of attacks they are carrying out and another major issue is that isis khorasan is pro operating in the provinces bordering pakistan and they have a major presence in khyber pakhtunwa which is the province of pakistan which borders um afghanistan so this becomes a you know transnational problem and the border around those areas is very porous so and it, there's a lot of highland mountainous territory which the taliban will find it very hard to you know exercise a, an effective counterinsurgency operation in now the other option then defeating them militarily is um, coming to terms with them and i i feel it might be a possibility for taliban but as said before they have too many differences for them to properly come to terms in an agreement and I just see this conflict getting worse for the next couple of years because the Taliban is not being able to exercise effective uh, monopoly of violence in their country. Basically, they're not being able to uh, make sure that they're the only actor who can, you know, use armed actions. And as long as they aren't able to do this, they're basically all can operate as a failed state. And I don't see that changing for quite a while yeah oddly enough the uh, same things that allowed them to operate for decades and come to power themselves is now limiting their ability to stay in power and keep stability uh pratamishya mul great stuff today one last question for you though for the western audience because our news media is basically ignoring this unless something like the zawahiri thing happens or god forbid you know there's a massive death toll or something like that What's a good way for folks to keep track of what's going on in Afghanistan? What should they be watching for? Because there's always going to be these little clashes. What should the Western audience and the American and English-speaking world audience be watching for that something is changing or something is getting better or worse over there? They should be watching for, honestly speaking, this conflict for now has been very steady. It's been very, for lack of a better word, it's been it's been consistent but cons like consistent in a negative way there's no there's no changes that have been occurring for western audiences i'd say there's always news about it it's just buried underneath a lot of other um let's say more important things for the west maybe but i would advise uh just keeping i would advise being informed about what isis does and what isis says because um as with the middle east and isis they're you know very vocal about what they're trying to do and of course the uh, the taliban has also become more media savvy they're putting out releases about their supposed counterinsurgency operations and the successes of it i would try to look for the impact on the civilians the moment you see the impact on civilians lessening you know as you find out that there's some kind of solution uh, coming up. But unfortunately, for now, it's 
not like that just recently you know uh, in something that's more closely related to my uh, location uh, there's been a relative mass exodus of afghan sikhs uh, leaving the country and fleeing to india because it's simply not that safe anymore because there's isis targeting them the taliban is not going to help them out that much they're infidels for the more radical members of the taliban so you know you have a community in the few hundreds of which there are scores fleeing back to india and of course um while i'm happy they have a safe haven here to come to it's also sad that they have to leave homes which they have occupied for centuries and it just shows that you know the most important thing here is the civilians and until we see less civilians being affected it's it's not going to get better. Yeah, well said, my friend. Uh, Pradamesh Yamul joining us on Hertel. We're definitely going to have you back, my friend. You've got good information. You present it well. We appreciate your insight. Let folks know how they can keep up with what you've got going on. We're going to link to your article. Let them know how they can follow you and what else you have going on, my friend, until we see you again. Um, I just have a blog that I operate on mostly issues like this. It's um, stuff.wordpress.com, but uh, th there's no T's, there's sevens instead. And you can just uh, visit me there. I write articles about things regularly. Of course, I also plan on writing more for um, publications like the International Policy Digest. So um, hopefully you can read more there. Yep. And we'll link to his blog and his other work. You do good work. We look forward to having you back real soon, my friend. Thank you so very much for the time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and contribute. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. She's one of our favorites. We take a break from the politics of the day, talk a little history, usually some kind of presidential history. We just did about four or five of the first lady ones. If you missed any of those, make sure you go back and watch them. She also wrote about it, electionsdaily.com, our good friends over there. We got another one. We're doing presidents and presidential health. Sarah Stook, great to see you again, my friend. How are you? Great to be back. I uh, love having you. Okay, so everybody talks about President Biden's health. Talked about it a little bit with Trump a couple different times. Talking about presidential health is not a new thing. And not only is it not a new thing, it's actually a pertinent thing because we've had quite a few presidents actually die in office, haven't we? Eight, which is, you know, pretty alarming for uh, well, natural causes, one might say, and then for who sort of at the end of the assassin's bullet and more who probably nearly died. You know, Reagan was shot. Jackson was tried. Those presidents get poorly, but unfortunately there has been eight who have died well enough this it's funny in the american system because you of course you're in the uk um it's very you're just used to your leaders resigning or getting out of office some other way we we've had only one resignation although we've had a couple that gotten close we only had one resign but we've had eight die in office that's kind of unusual in the grand scheme of things isn't it well in you know obviously we're not an absolute monarchy anymore but in monarchies do you expect them to die because that's kind of the point and then they will go on to their son, daughter, whoever. But you kind of expect that in leaders. They, you know, a lot of these, uh, they're older blokes. They're, you know, some of their health isn't too great. Living in times where modern medicine wasn't around. 
anyone could dive anything. Let's go through these because these are just fascinating. And I love doing these kind of histories. The first one to die in history was William Henry Harrison. Now he was 68. So in 1841, that's actually pretty old. Uh, modern technology, people tend to live a little longer now. 68 was a pretty good run back then. Uh, he died. We're not exactly sure. Pneumonia, typhoid, something. But give a little background, though, who William Henry Harrison was, kind of one of the more probably unknown presidents to the modern here. Well, to quote Simpsons, when he did the President's Day, he lived for 30 days. If we're going to be technical, it was 31. Um, he was a war hero who had um, made himself to be a hard drinking cider man log cabin bloke, even though he was from quite good stock, who famously did a very, very long inaugural dress in March, in snow and rain in Washington, which is a big no-no. But there is the myth that I think most people believe that he died because of that. Not technically true. He did get pneumonia later as he used to like walking around Washington meeting people without a coat. And yeah, it's a swamp. It's 1841 and it's a swamp. So he developed what is either believed to be pneumonia or typhoid. And after a month in office, he died. And everyone was like, oh, bum, we didn't know what to do. Because it was the first time it happened. There was no real precedent. So everyone was like, is John Tyler president? Is the acting president? What is going on? Yeah. And it's interesting. You made a mention on this is the swamp killed him. And that's not like what President Trump always talked about, the swamp or the, the D.C. is literally built on a swamp. It's a tidal basin. It's, it's a swamp. And this kind of weather, and you mentioned it, this almost killed George Washington back in 1799. Yeah, I mean, you can, pres obviously presidents get poorly, but yeah, back when Washington was around, and Adams and all those, well, yeah, because, you know, you, you got yellow fever, you got malaria, you got all sorts of things, or outbreaks and epidemics, especially, in, you know, obviously Washington didn't reside in Washington, but later presidents, you're always going to run that risk. Also interesting, and I found this kind of morbidly funny. You mentioned that there might have been a real simple thing that also made his health bad, that in 1844, the White House's water supply was diluted. This is not uncommon in that era. Uh, sewage and bacteria, they didn't have clean drinking water. Pretty amazing that something as simple as clean drinking water probably attributed to the ill health of a president. But that's well, that was the case for thousands and if not millions of people of that era also. Happens. It kills millions every year. There's always adverts in the UK about, you know, water aid, getting clean and safe water. You had there were typhoid epidemics. Unfortunately clean water is so important, but you know, sadly it is still a problem. But we associate it in the Western world with Harrison and that generation. All right. In your piece, electionsdaily.com, we uh, link to it. You always go, could they have survived today? Pneumonia is very serious. In fact, pneumonia is a very big killer because usually somebody that's sick of something else, they die of pneumonia because they get it in the hospital. You know, a lot of cancer patients die of pneumonia. Freddie Mercury. Yeah. yeah you, pneumonia is what kills you when you're sick with something else. But it is treatable now. Again, we mentioned 68 is pretty old back then. Modern day era, does he survive, you think? He didn't really seem to have anything else too badly wrong with him. He survived war, so, you know, pretty tough customer. Antibiotics, bed rest, typhoid, you could have a vaccine. He would survive pretty, might feel a bit rough, but he'd be all right. Yeah. 
So he was the first, and everybody kind of panicked, didn't know what to do. But Zachary Taylor did the same thing nine years later. Um, Taylor's such an interesting character in history. He doesn't, he's another one of those that's kind of got those inter period before the Civil War presence just don't get the press that the other ones seem to do. But he was a very interesting character in history. Talk for just a second about who Zachary Taylor was leading up to his presidency before we get to what actually killed him. He was another war hero and very well regarded who was replaced by a guy called Millard Fillmore so you know that's this fascinating war hero take and and succeeded by a guy with a very strange name that somehow everybody forgets he um was at a fourth of july celebration he had um some cherry with raw milk with raw rice and yeah he died of gastroenteritis something along those lines because that water that milk that ice was not very clean now this actually sparked a big conspiracy theory at the time because it seemed so out of the blue because he was seen he was 65 but again war hero was seen as pretty healthy and virulent at the time there was a conspiracy that maybe there was an assassination here that it was arsenic that it was some kind of poisoning because it did seem so out of the blue and because he did seem to suffer of a stomach thing for I think what five or six days he lingered before he finally died of it. And plus, you know, it, there was rumors that you know the Confederates, well, the later Confederates, the South versus the North, they weren't happy with him, and they did, you know, dig up his body years later and said there was a bit more than normal, but no indication that it would have killed him. So was it a conspiracy, or did he just eat too much fruit and milk? Fruit and milk, sadly, I think, you know, with uh, very unclean water, sort of went of the way of Henry Harrison. So something like uh, gastroenteritis, perhaps cholera, which was very common at the time. Taylor, he gets it today. Does he survive, you think? I mean, gastroenteritis is not very fun, but, you know, with proper rest, proper treatment, you can be better. Uh, cholera still exists however there are medications for it and well he wouldn't have maybe even got it today because his water would have been clean Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. All right, here's one everybody probably thinks they know, but there's probably some ins and outs of it that folks probably aren't aware of. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's survival is not part of this, although he lived for, what, 12 hours after he got shot through the head, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, Lincoln, of course, was assassinated. We know John Wilkes Booth. We know it was a close-range gunshot to the back of the head. But what's some of the other parts of this assassination that people don't really think of when they hear about Lincoln's assassination? He was 57 years old. Um in his youth, he was extremely athletic. He was known to be a very good wrestler. 
very wiry kind of guy. So his his health was his health good while he was in office. He wrote himself about the extreme strain of the Civil War. We see the before and after pictures of just four years in office before the assassination. How was Lincoln's health? You think? Um, his health wasn't, you know, amazing. It wasn't, you know, as bad as some presidents like Kennedy. But you know, he suffered many ailments of the day. It's believed that he suffered from depression. His wife was also very mentally unwell, so that was an added stress. He lost his children. There's believed to have he's had some kind of conditions. However, these are ones that you can't really diagnose all these years later. Um, yeah, he was shot point blank, which in the film, if someone gets shot in the head, they usually just die. But it's not usually like that in real life. It's not just a, it's loud, it's messy. It's not just a little bullet hole. He, back of the head what it did to him he lived for about nine hours um when they took him to, across to the boarding house the doctor said yeah there's nothing we can do it was a case of keeping him comfortable even today it's very unlikely there are some people some surgeons who have been interviewed who said he could have lived but he would have had extremely severe deficits you know motor function speaking thinking and you know back then the treatment of disabled people wasn't fantastic and he could have died from anything else but i, I don't believe he would have survived point blank to the back of the head you know yeah, not surviving that and for the forensic nuts that watch all those shows on tv the derringer that he's using in the one of the reasons the civil war was so brutal these aren't bullets like we have today these guys are just shooting chunks of metal at each other that are soft lead and they they basically deform as soon as they hit anything this isn't like a quick clean bullet wound like you see today this is just a big chunk of metal at a low muzzle velocity going right in the back of somebody's head so that's also it, it's why he lived as long as he did but it's also why it's so destructive for the medicine of the time these kind of wounds were just brutal oh completely he you know even today like i said I mean, there are some people who get shot in the head and survive. It's, you know, they're very lucky. But like I said, it's not like in the films. And as you said, it'd be very destructive. And, you know, it would have killed probably even a healthier man. If it could be a young 20-something man. Sadly, it's one of those things that doesn't really discriminate by age or health. Yeah. And historically, just put a little perspective on it, because we've had two presidents die in office before this. We've had you got to think of the time period. The Civil War was extremely traumatic to the nation. This was really something that just struck everybody to the absolute core when Lincoln got shot, wasn't it? I mean, it's the first time the president was assassinated in office. So, you know, it's not just a death, it's an assassination. As you said, it ended up extremely traumatic and bloody war. He led the nation through it. So you couldn't really imagine anybody else, sort of like Roosevelt with World War II, taking over. And you know, if you said to somebody, famous assassinations even the uk people might say lincoln really why is that just because it's such a strong because you you've had you've had some stuff in uk history as well it's it's interesting they would say lincoln well we've only had one prime minister assassinated and that was spencer percival back in the early 19th century but when you think of assassinations you might think attempted assassinations you might think of, you know margaret thatcher maybe in the uk maybe lord mountbatten ira sort of that kind of one but if you said to me assassinations, my mind would immediately go to maybe like Martin Luther King. Right. And you've talked before that Kennedy was kind of a worldwide thing for a lot of folks as well. Fascinating stuff. One more of this earlier era, and then we're going to get into the more of a modern era of presidents. But um, James <laughs> A. Garfield, I find this case so fascinating because 
I've actually read quite a bit of the medical stuff. I've watched some shows on this. This is one of those, if they'd left him alone, he probably might have lived. But we'll get into that in just a second. Start with James A. Garfield, who he was, a little bit about his presidency and what led up to this uh, assassination. He was quite young. I think he was only about 49, 50 when he died. Um, so one of our younger presidents, he was a Republican who had served under Rutherford B. Hayes and Walter uh, McKinley, a few of the Civil War presidents. He was coming out of a station, a train station, along with um, Lincoln's son, who has an unfortunate timing of being around or near three of the four presidential assassinations that he was alive for. So he was shot by uh, Charles Gateau, who was a uh, mentally ill man who believed he was, you know, somehow related to Richard III of England. As Garfield, um, he'd pledged to end the act of patronage where people would basically support you and then you'd get a job. He was against that. And um, he and he tried to get hold of Garfield because the fact that you could basically walk into the White House, it's a little bit concerning. And you know, Garfield said no. And so unfortunately he was shot and he lingered for quite a while, quite a few months. Um, like you said, the bullet wound, I mean, obviously no bullet wound is particularly a good thing, but if it had been left alone or actually surgically done surgically properly, he would have been fine. He was young, fairly healthy. There's no reason to think he wouldn't survive, even in that day and age. But they hadn't actually worked out about bacteria yet and that you're supposed to wash your hands so you know they thought we're doctors it was it was considered extremely offensive to cons uh, say that doctors were um unclean the person who discovered germ theory was actually locked in an asylum for daring to suggest that the hands of doctors were unclean so they were prodding around poking everything while he was in probably absolute agony and at first it thought it would survive and then it sort of went a bit downhill from there and there was a comedy of errors here um alexander graham bell showed up with a prototype of a metal detector but he was laying on a metal spring breads bed so that didn't work uh most of the doctor documentation is they were actually on the wrong side of the body looking for the bullet because they didn't understand they didn't understand ballistics at the time so they didn't understand it had stopped on the other side and they were looking in the wrong place they prodded him with bare hands as you tell him. he lived for three this went for three months okay and he had yeah, he went for three months. They moved him back to New Jersey, trying to heal him that way. This was a god-awful mess medically, but politically this was a mess too because Chester Arthur was the vice president. The assassin had stated he wanted Arthur to be president, so obviously he was trying to do a low-profile thing. He didn't really want to take over the reins. This was a mess on a lot of levels, wasn't it? I mean, people accuse Arthur of being behind the assassination and is not the uh, last president to be accused of being behind it, as we will see with Johnson a little later on. So, you know, not, I don't I think people, vice presidents want to be president, but unfortunately, it only usually happens when the president's heartbeat stops. Yeah, I've always find it fascinating if it, the picture is infamous, but I would have loved for there to have been some decent, high quality video of Johnson swearing in on the plane. Because you can just see it on his face. Like, he does not want to be there. Like, you can just <laughs> see it. And Jackie's there. And it's it had to be just, you know, hellish to go through that. And they took a still picture. And that's probably why there is no video and film of it. Because they probably was like, not filming this. But I think it would have been fascinating to see. Okay. Uh, that's kind of the older area. We're going to get into the modern era. Um, more presidential death. 
assassination and otherwise. Unfortunately, in modern era, that's pretty much the only way it happens. We're going to talk a little bit more about presidential health. Our historian friend, Sarah Stook from over in the UK, electionsdaily.com and the Mallard. We love having her. More with her right after this on her tell. Welcome back to Herdell. We're talking to our friend Sarah Stuck over in the UK, our historian friend. We're talking about presidents, presidential health, more specifically those who health failed either by illness or an assassin's bullet. This is the latter. Uh, William McKinley, 1901. He's 58 years old. He goes to this exhibition up in Buffalo. Uh, again, it's amazing. This story isn't more well known than it is. He walks into the exhibition hall and he is to kind of simplify it, gets gut shot by this guy, this radical, crazy man. Doesn't kill him directly. In fact, one of one of the most amazing scenes in presidential history, he's laying there bleeding and gut shot. The mob starts to beat this dude to death, and McKinley raises his voice and tells them to stop, and they stop, which is just amazing. But talk about William McKinley, his assassination, and this is really a pivotal moment in American history, not just because the poor president got assassinated, but because of who his vice president was and who his vice president became. Well, he was um, just started his second term. His uh, original vice president had been Garrett Hobart, who had sadly died of a heart attack. So uh, Theodore Roosevelt became vice president because he'd become far too troublesome as governor of New York and the Republican Party wanted him in a dead-end position. It was uh, Mark Hanna who said, if that damn cowboy will be president if anything happens to Garfield, which... You know, Garfield, uh, sorry, McKinley, which sadly came through. So um, McKinley was at the Buffalo World Ex uh, Expedition, uh, <clears throat> Expedition, I can't say it, <laughs> Expedition, Exhibition, and um, he was shaking hands. Now, usually you would have to have both of your hands showing, but because it was a hot day, people had handkerchiefs, so the Secret Service said, yeah, that's fine. They said to him, don't go and shake hands, but McKinley was a very social man who could shake, you know, 50 hands in, like, minute. He was very good. And he was of the belief that nobody would want to harm the president. So before he got to his assassin, he shook the hand of the little girl, and he gave her his lucky um, pin which is a little ironic because the next person who shot off his hand shot him in the stomach. Yeah, it was a mess. But here's another one. Initially, they thought he would live. He seemed to be doing decently well. In fact, uh, Roosevelt had rushed back from, he was in vacationing up at Saginaw. He rushed back and then he even went back on vacation. They thought the president was going to live. Unbeknownst to them, he actually had a cardiac issue that nobody knew about. He actually died of probably pancreatitis um, when they looked into this. Uh, here's another one where he kind of lingered for a while, and it was kind of surprising when he died because they thought he might actually live from this. Yeah, I mean, actually, funnily enough, X-ray machine was being exhibited at the exhibition, and they thought, no, it's not. It's too early to use it, which is kind of understandable, but hindsight is a wonderful thing. Yeah, you know, Roosevelt was told that he would be all right. He said, okay, cool, I'm going to go back on holiday, which is a you'd think they would say, you know, just stay just in case, but this was before, even before the vice president had, you know, a little more power than they did. So you think, yes, it was a little worrying he went off. Um, he seemed okay, um, McKinley, but since I had gangrene, which is, ugh. 
and sadly he died in a fair amount of pain yeah and one of the real sad his last words were actually about his wife uh, one of the sad scenes of this was his wife, I guess, completely lost it right towards the end as, as the near the end was near and it was obvious she had a total breakdown and that kind of finished him off. Poor guy. Um, here's another one, though. Survival modern medicine with the underlying cardiac issue. I don't know if he actually it would be easy to say, yeah, surgery could have saved him. But with the other issues he had, surgery is a complicated thing. That's traumatic on the body. I know this one firsthand. Um, would he have been saved modernly? I think this one's kind of up in the air. Um, he was shot in the stomach, which as far as getting shot is concerned, is probably the worst place because, you know, it can bounce around and oh, it's not very nice. Um, his cardiac issue probably could have been, you know, foreseen. It would have been diagnosed. Um, I think, you know, Garfield was pretty much a certainty he could have lived today. McKinley, so-so. Mm, I think with the, with good treatment, with good outcome, sure. But, you know, people can die of getting their appendix out and getting the tonsils out. Like, surgery always carries that risk, no matter how good the surgeon and how, you know, clean and sterile the environment is. All right. Here's somebody we talked about when we did the First Ladies to some extent because... Um his other proclivities outside of politics. We'll leave it at that. Uh, Warren G. Harding, interesting character, uh, died of, apparently of a heart attack. He sat straight up in bed and started convulsing and basically keeled over dead. Uh, talk about Warren Harding and him dying in office. Again, here's a guy who was probably in poor health in general. He was 57. Uh, again, like we talked about on the first ladies episode, kind of a interesting character anyway. Talk about him for a minute. Um, Harding was in his first term. He was extremely, extremely popular because Teapot Dome and a lot of the other scandals had not come out yet. That would severely ruin his reputation. He was very gregarious. He was very open, especially compared to Wilson, who was a bit of a cold fish. Um, there was a trip with the presidential posse um, down the West Coast of America, starting at Alaska. Harding didn't initially want to go, but Florence said, I'm seeing Alaska and that's that. So went to Alaska, you know, he got a bit of um, food poisoning, but was okay. Then moved on to Oregon, which is when he started to feel poorly. So they cancelled that trip and went to San Francisco. Um, he was still fairly poorly. They diagnosed some kind of heart condition, perhaps a stomach condition. He said he was okay walking to the hotel, but he sadly collapsed and had to be helped back up. They uh, prescribed him with medicine that actually probably actually helped trigger his heart attack because they didn't know what heart attack was at the time. His wife, Florence, was reading some praise, um, praise in the news. His last words were, that's good, read on. And like you said, suddenly clutched his heart, convulsed, went dead. And by the time Florence was back, well, he was dead basically by the time he hit the bed. Yeah. What effect did this have in history? Because, again, Harding's kind of one of those forgotten presidents because of the people that came before and directly after him. He died in 1923. Um, just big picture wise, what was how did the country take this news? Well, you know, he was very popular at the time because, like I said, didn't know about the scandals. You know, the in uh, industry was being and the economy was enjoying rapid success. Um, you sort of one of those things. What you know, what would have happened? He probably would have won re-election. But you know, Calvin Coolidge took over, a popular president, especially among Republicans, even to this day. But it's quite a shock because he's this popular guy with a popular wife and suddenly, you know, he just has a heart attack. All right. A towering figure in American history, uh, the longest serving president 
Franklin D. Roosevelt, we know his health was bad. It was hidden from the public at the time. Of course, we know he couldn't stand unassisted, these sorts of things. Uh, died, in, died at age 63, 1945. Uh, the cause of death was listed as a cerebral hemorrhage. Hemorrhage. This had to just be brutal to a nation who had just kind of come to rely on FDR, whatever you thought of his politics and all that stuff. He'd been president for um, half a generation at this point. He'd been um, president for 12 years. P many people couldn't remember a time before him. Yeah, really. And, you know, World War II is winding down. People are starting to see the end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel of World War II. They're starting to be hopeful that the war is going to come to an end. And then this hits the country just culturally and politically, though. This was really a bomb to America that was otherwise distracted by World War II, right? I can't say I was alive for it. But, well, no, uh, well, yeah. you're a historian, so. <laughs> yeah, um, I can't use the before my time excuse that many years. Um, he was in very poor health. Um, you know, it's believed he had um, either polio or a similar disease, um, Guillain-Barre disease, which is sort of similar, but historians aren't sure which one it was. He was in poor health generally. He had heart issues, blood uh, pressure, tension. When he came back from Yalta, everybody was shocked. Even at Yalta, Churchill and Stalin were like, whoa, this dude is poorly. And you can tell in the pictures. Like, he's he's leaning over in the chairs. He's not sitting up. You, he's so just the picture. Yeah, you can tell in the pictures of the Yalta conference. I think, was it Stalin? I think Stalin had actually wrote in some of his personal writings about how bad FDR looked at Yalta, um, among other things. So it, it was kind of probably more well-known outside of America than inside of America, just how poorly he was, wasn't it? Because back then you could hide. The Secret Service would take the cameras of photographers who'd seen him in his wheelchair. They would you know, have it destroyed or bribe them otherwise. So, you know, it's not like today where every move is, you know, taken. We all know about Joe Biden having COVID, for example. So it kept quiet. But he was a, he, he was always quite a poorly, a poorly man. He was never healthy. You know, paralysis aside, he had so many issues. It's sort of a bit of a wonder how he wasn't killed earlier it's maybe sheer willpower got him through because you know he just started fourth term which we're never going to see again because of constitutional amendment to FDR though um, we know what the Civil War did to Lincoln uh, Wilson wrote about the strain of World War one even though that was only really about a two-year 18-month period and he was incapacitated for part of that but that's another story for another day we know what um, JFK and Johnson and Nixon wrote about Vietnam we know what W has talked about the war on terror Obama has talked about it wartime presidents and that war and specifically where it was all encompassing because you had the entire country, on a war footing, you had, you know, the biggest conflict the world has ever seen, hopefully ever will see. It yeah. had to have taken a toll. It just had, th there's no way that doesn't grind a man up. I don't care what kind of man it is, right? He'd been president. I mean, the war had been going on for just about four years in America. I see a bit longer because you guys were pretty late to the game. Easy you know, now. We got there eventually. Yeah, it took you a while there, didn't it? Um, you know, you're seeing, you know, your lands attacked, millions of young boys and men being shipped off to, to you know, he did put the Japanese-American internment camps, whether he actually felt sorry for that or not is a different matter. 
it's not easy being a president, even in peacetime, I'd argue. Wartime is just another kettle of fish entirely, which is why I firmly believe if a president, prime minister or leader puts themselves, you know, in glory in wartime, that is why they're remembered. And I think foreign policy can make or break a president. And, you know, his obviously foreign policy is still extremely uh, domestic. It's really well guys today and he is constantly seen as one of one off, if not the best president. But yeah, it was long and tiring. Still managed to type, find time for affairs though. Yeah. Uh, great movie um, about the Hudson. Bill Murray plays FDR. You ought to go watch that movie at some point. Okay. Here's the one that looms large. Anytime you do a list of presidents dying in office, I guess generationally, this might be easing off just a little bit because time passes, but the assassination of JFK, we've talked about it before. Uh, with you as we've talked about presidents over the years where does this sit in the consciousness today because again that that generation where oh everybody knew where they were when jfk died you know they're getting older now it's more of a historical thing now than a lived experience does it still loom as large as it did and where is it in the in kind of the collective consciousness the assassination of jfk i don't think my generation has had its you remember where you were moment yeah the 1963 assassination was something my nana can remember and said everyone was very shocked and upset because he was young and handsome and popular you know for my mum it was princess diana dying and 9-11 i was alive for 9-11 but i was pretty young so i have absolutely no memory of it but yeah that was the remember where you were moment and you know it was so sudden it wasn't like he was known to be poorly i mean he was i mean he was probably one of the sickest presidents we've ever seen but this was hidden of course because you could back then and joe kennedy spent a lot of money trying to hide it so he's going along and you know people don't realize how unsafe dallas was for him this was you know just the civil rights movement was really gaining speed when you know race relations were so poor dallas was dangerous they were he was told in no uncertain times you should probably not go there were threats. The Secret Service was processing hundreds, if not thousands, of threats. Handbills calling Kennedy a traitor. But he had to because he needed Texas for 64. So off he went with Jackie. And, you know, usually Jackie didn't go, but they'd lost their son, Patrick, very shortly before. And she said, OK, I'll come. And she was you know, extremely popular. So she was sort of a great campaign asset. He went with, you know, Governor Colin, uh, Connolly, Nellie Connolly, the Johnsons driving along and suddenly boom three shots two hit him one sort of in the neck area and one in the head he's straightened up by his brace his back brace so that hits him blood skull bone fragments all over the car clint hill jumps on the top they rush the parkland you know he was certainly wouldn't survive this isn't a case of garfield or mckinley when it was definitely either either I mean, even Roosevelt, you know, cerebral hemorrhages are really, really bad at the best of times. And, you know, he couldn't, a man of his health and age, even today, probably wouldn't survive. But Kennedy, you know, people could say he survived, but, you know, the man had half his skull out. When they got to Parkland, they looked at him and said, no. I mean, they tried, they had to do something for a cotomy heart massage, but... You know, he was missing half his brain, half his skull. He wasn't. He never regained consciousness. He was kind of there, but not there. Last rites. He had his last rites like five, six times in his life. So his was a very horrific death. Not I mean. Hopefully for him, it was 
instantaneous but you know for jackie and the connellys because we forget governor connelly was shot as well luckily he survived and the thing about kennedy that they didn't know then because the press was different we do know now kennedy may not have lived out his term anyway because his health was his health was so bad they had him on all kinds of drugs to keep him going the the reason that when you look at the video of the assassination, he falls so funny, like you mentioned, he had to wear a very heavy back brace to kind of keep him upright because his back was so shot. He was taking massive amounts of drugs, both for his condition and also for pain management. Kennedy was in horrible shape health wise. Um, we believe he had Addison's disease, which is an autoimmune disease. He may not have lived his term out anyway, which is one of those great what ifs with Kennedy. Everybody talks about, well, what if he didn't get shot? It's like, well, if he didn't get shot, his health was so bad, it's hard to tell what would have happened with the poor I guy. I mean, even if the bullet had hit a sort of a less dangerous place, he probably wouldn't have made surgery. Out of, he wouldn't have got out of the theatre alive. There's a good, very good chance of that. Like you said, it is a miracle. Like If you read his health history, it's just it's unbelievable how that man lived his age. I mean, today it might have been a bit better with modern medicine, but he still had a lot of diseases. I mean, Addison's disease is a lot better now, but still, autoimmune disorder is never particularly a good thing. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, to bring all this into it, we have a president who's pushing 80, will be over 80 when he runs for re-election. If he chooses to do so, his primary opponent, President Trump, ain't exactly young either. We have... <laughs> The top four or five people in the line of presidential secession are either close to or over 80, uh, Speaker Pelosi and um, Grassley. We are going to have more and more geriatric politicians. We have a bunch of them now. What is fair and what is not fair to talk about age and health when it comes to a president or a senator or even a congressman, do you think? I think, you know, when it's retrospective, you know, a lot of people uh, make comments about Barry Goldwater being psychologically insane creating the Goldwater rule is when you have not personally diagnosed the patient or the patient is from a long time ago, you cannot make comments about their, you know, their mental stability. But yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, to be fair, you know, back then you could, I mean, hundreds of years ago, you could say anything about any president's health because even if they're young, they could have still died of a lot of things. Now the general rule is unless you are, you know, already got a long-term condition, you know, you're likely to live out your presidential term. Joe Biden will turn 80. You know, it was a miracle Reagan wasn't killed. He was 70. And the the only reason he survived was because he was in such good health. And then he lived to a very good age. So, you know, it's fair to wonder. I mean, Trump was very poorly with COVID. He was in hospital. I mean, it's a good job he didn't die. This is not something that's going away. We're going to have to keep talking about it. Hopefully not in hindsight. And thankfully, you know, JFK's assassination, you know, that was, you know, the 60s. Thankfully, we haven't had a president die in office since and or been assassinated, although we've had the close calls. So long may that trend last. But Sarah Stuck, we love talking history with you. Always appreciate having you on. Let folks know what you've got coming up, what you're working on now and where they can follow you until we have you back on again, because you're one of our regulars and we enjoy having you. I've said it for the past probably three episodes I've been on that. I will do a uh, one about vice presidents i promise i will do it but it takes a lot longer when you don't know as much about vice presidents than to do first ladies and i do have other things i have to write for the publications so i promise 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 i will the first one will be done at some point it's going to be pretty long because i'm doing it in multiples of seven because it matches up with the number i promise 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 but um for the mallard i'm just doing one about fascinating european royals who aren't as well known so there won't be any catherine the great 
or you know Henry VIII I'm going to be doing people you might not have heard of who have done some amazing things uh, Flexons Daily uh, this piece actually got quite a lot of um, interest which was fun so maybe I'll leave the vice president for now and just keep doing a bit of trivia until I can finally do that first article on them yeah, the only European royal that I know of that I wrote of was Ludwig of Bavaria, of course, who built New Schwanstein and who magically drowned without having any water in his lungs and his doctor drowned with him by osmosis, also not having any water in his lungs. So that's the only royal I remember because I wrote about New Schwanstein. Sheriff Stooks, thank you so much for the time today. Love having you. We'll do it again thank real you. soon. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, you see him, so you know what we're talking about. Jericho Hill, economist du jour. He works at a four-letter, not a three-letter government agency in his day job, but his opinions are his and his alone, even though they're usually mostly correct. Uh, Jericho Hill, welcome back, buddy. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. And it turns out that uh, the designation of three- and four-letter uh, agency actually matters because uh, some uh, Congress critters have been calling for three-letter agencies to be abolished recently. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the agency. I'm not again it in principle, but I need to see the fine print. Uh, four-letter government agencies are like golf. They're four-letter words because all the other four-letter words were taken for nefarious purposes. But Jericho Hill brings us great information. We love having him on the program. That's why he's on here so frequently. Normally, we talk economic news, but there's no economic news in the headlines. So I guess we'll just talk about sports or something, right? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's nothing going on. Let's start here. I'm going to ask the dumb question because I think it needs to be asked at the lowest level for people to kind of get their arms around it. Everybody's arguing over, are we, aren't we in a recession? Everybody's arguing over what inflation is and isn't doing it. Practically, monetary policy-wise, I know politically and culturally it matters. Does whether or not we call it a recession actually matter that much? Not really. Um, what now, I, what Steve, I, you just lit the internet on fire. You can't say it doesn't matter, but I'm, that's why I ask you these hard questions. Yeah. So, Monetary so, policy, is it really changing anything? Is it just us being loud? Does it really matter whether it's certain inflation or not? Because we're going to kind of do the same principles, whether it is over or not over the line. They're going to do the same reactionary stuff, right? So what matters is how policymakers are doing to uh, respond to the pressures of the day. So uh, the analogy that I've been using for the last couple of days is this is akin to you going to the doctor's office uh, where you have, you've hurt your leg and you're pretty sure you've got a fracture and the doctors are arguing over whether it's a small fracture or a medium fracture. And in the meantime, you're on the doctor's bed and you're just like, please, dear Lord, just give me a freaking painkiller already, you know, worry about this other stuff later. So that's sort of what's going on. I think, you know, I don't think it really matters. Like everybody agrees that like we're in a weird economic cycle. That there are that there's a downturn in GDP. Is this a recession? Is it not a recession? It's sort of one of those things that I think it's being played for a political football game. But what really matters is how are policymakers responding to it. It's not going to make a hill of beans difference to the Fed, right? Whether this is called a recession or not, in terms of the Fed's policy and what they're doing with interest rates. Um, you know, and I think your your guest. Uh, uh, from a couple of days ago, Andrew Salter. Hopefully, I got his name right. Alexander um, Salter. Alexander Salter. I apologize. He's a great guest, by the way. Um, you know, there are 
I think, you know, we're, we're seeing folks get confused or, or politicians are deliberately confusing. We use a rule of thumb in economics for a recession, two quarters of negative GDP growth. That's a rule of thumb. That's a proxy. That's like saying Tom Brady's on your team. You're going to win the football game. That's a really good prediction. It doesn't always work. The, the folks that actually define whether we're in a recession or not, that this group of economists, they look at more than just negative GDP growth. There's other factors like what's going on with personal consumption expenditures, consumer spending, uh, unemployment, employment, what's happening to wages, etc. So when we get into that picture, right, the rule of thumb, which works you know, 90% of the time, doesn't really line up with what we're seeing because we've got some very positive indicators about the economy and we've got some very negative indicators on the economy. And I want to go back to my analogy. We want the doctors to stop arguing for a brief moment and just give us a painkiller. Yeah. Jericho Hill joining us, dispensing opiates for the people when it comes to economic information. I did not say opiates. Did you I see what I did killer. there? Yeah, did I said what a I did killer. There? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why you just brought it up, let's just go ahead and go after another buzzwordy thing here. We keep, I, this is my fourth or fifth interview with you now where we talk about how the, the really weird thing that's blown everybody's mind is all this economic stuff and the unemployment rate's low. That's the number that's just breaking the models. And the labor market's oh. doing good, and like you know, workers still have a lot of bargaining power over wages. Okay, yeah. So let me ask the dumb guy question again. I asked it about the recession term. Is unemployment is the unemployment number just not mattering that much? Because if we keep having these conversations every couple of months of well, the unemployment number's low, but lab- labor price and labor resort and labor this and labor that and wages are down and what does it really matter that much if we just keep having to blow over it every time we have this conversation? I think it. I think it. I think it does matter a little bit because it would impact sort of what policy prescription you want to have, and it's good to know that hey, we actually have really low unemployment. Um, and, and and there are others that would say, well, yes, but you know, there's folks that have dropped out of the labor market, uh, and that's true. We're still not back to what prime EPOP uh, employment population ratio uh, was pre-crisis. I think we still have a percentage point to go on there. Um, you know, so we still have a little bit of, of a slack there. But, yeah, I mean, so it, it matters in sort of like what policies we're going to be pursuing. But at the end of the day, you know, what I think folks are going to be more keyed on is, hey, this inflation thing's really biting at budgets. You know, let's just let's just, let's focus on what's causing the pain right now. And let's worry about the technical details later. You know, I, I just want to say, like, this isn't the great financial crisis recession where we had double digit unemployment and people dropped out of the labor market for several years or couldn't get a job. And that has all sorts of terrible effects on families and households. Here, everybody seems to be pretty much employed, but you know maybe some of their wage gains are being eaten up. And as you said, you had a great piece about what was going on with um, uh, Gen Z and their labor supply and how they were responding and how employers are actually now responding to giving Gen Z different employment opportunities, often like how they're also trying to recruit uh, working, uh, soon-to-be working moms uh, in factories, right? You know, we've talked about that previously. Yeah, and the reason I got into that Gen Z piece, we'll link back to that because I found that fascinating. I, I hate the boomer trope, but I, there's no way to get around it in this because it really there's some data here. The boomers were complaining about the millennials not working their entry-level jobs. Well, the reason was now, come to find out, the boomers were eating all the jobs up, and they're the ones complaining about it, and now we got the data to kind of show that. 
when you're an economist and you have something gener I don't what I don't even know the right term to ask. Is it generationally weird? Is it whatever term you use? When you have an outlier like that or something that hasn't really happened before, it happens once and then it stops happening because now the, yeah. the Zoomers are taking those jobs right back up like previous generations do. As an economist, what do you do with an anomaly like that? Do you study it for the future? Do you go, oh, that's an anomaly? What do you do with hindsight and economics? Because most of what y'all do that we, the public, want is projecting in the future and telling us what's coming. This seems to be something important that we probably shouldn't just brush past. We should probably talk about especially how we covered it at the time and how wrong so many people had it, right? Yeah, I think, you know, so so look, if we go back, you know, one of the causes of why, um, for lack of a better term, Zoomer or not, uh, Boomer workers stayed in the labor force uh, longer than what we would have expected from previous generations is right about the time they were starting to think about retirement, right, that first time, something called the Great Financial Crisis happened. And they had to stay in the labor market a bit more and keep, keep working so that their stock portfolios, their retirement portfolios could recover, right? Um, you know, and so, yeah, that, that, would, that, would, that would keep people, you know, that would, that would, that would keep jobs that, that would have been potential openings, you know, they would have stayed in, you know, those openings would not have been there. Um, so, yeah, we, we as economists, you know, what we try to do is we try to look at what happened in the past in, in, in scenarios and then apply those scenarios to what we think is going to happen in the future, right? And those should sort of help inform our, our future policy decisions. We saw something similar happen in the past, so maybe we should do something like that. You know, like what worked to resolve that issue in the past, we should think about doing now in the future. You know, I believe uh, in comments this morning, I call this, this seems to be more like a 2001 recession if it's a recession than a 2008 recession right where it's sort of like the 2001 was mild pretty quick you know resolved itself and this this recession here in 2008 would took a long time to unwind you know we were we're anticipating that this is this is just a this is a relatively relatively shallow or blippy kind of recession that we're seeing like to keep in mind a lot of the negative gdp in the second quarter was still the result of companies not getting their inventory situation right, which seems to be something that we keep harping on for the last several quarters in a row. Okay, so here's another question because you just brought it up. All of that is assuming that it's a blip, that everything stays the same as it is right now on the current trajectory. What's the odds that all this tinkering we're doing because of the crisis, however you want to define that, we could possibly make this worse? Because everybody acts like everything we're going to do is make it better. There's a propensity that we could actually make this worse and prolong it also, right? Well, you know, uh, so one, you know, the price of oil is relatively outside of our control. There are things we can do in the long run to uh, have more resiliency against the price of, of oil and other fuel costs and energy costs. I should be, I should just simply call that energy costs as a whole, um, which, you know, could involve some short-term spending, but, but has long-term benefits. Um, you know, how the war in Europe, you know, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, how that resolves. There's that simmering conflict that we see in Kazakhstan, you know, that, that you know, the geopolitical game being played there between Russia and China that you've also had people on to talk about. And I, I really appreciate that episode, by the way. Um, you know, so, yeah, we, we try to, you know, we're, we're making guesses as to, like, what we think is going to be the, you know, the, what we call the shock that might happen in the future. There, there's all sorts of things that could happen. Space aliens come down tomorrow. Well, there goes all of our predictions, you know. Um, 
we could have a really bad climate disaster. We could have a bad hurricane. We could have, you know, uh, we could have civil unrest because of a police violence action or something like that. Again, we, we don't know. We could so have we, one oil refinery go down and it will screw this whole country up because we haven't built one since the 70s. We, but we could have just a tanker, an example. We could have a tanker get stuck in a canal again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm a logistics guy. That one hurt my soul. So, so there's there's a lot. Of, so yes, those are the downside risks. And again, you know, as I thought about the the COVID crisis and what we got wrong, you know, team transitory, so to speak, or what's happening to inflation. Like, I think part of us that were on team transitory got wrong was that we just simply assumed that we are just getting hit with a string of bad luck after bad luck after bad luck of things that we just weren't expecting and they just kept happening. And they seem to always be downside risk, never upside risk, always downside. Who's they, to say that luck has changed, right? So, you know, we we sort of assume a neutral setting, but, you know, to, to be mindful that it can go up and down. Yeah, well, only having downside risk, that would, that's to an economist like a lawyer only, you know, defending innocent people. Like, yeah. you're not going to get that. That's part of the job, right? It's just kind of yeah. baked into the cake. Um, Jericho Hill joining us. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to put him on the spot. We're going to go through some economic headlines, right? Ripped from the headlines. We're going to throw him right at him, get him to react about it. We're also going to continue to talk about inflation and are we, aren't we in a recession? Cost of living. It all goes together in a nice big ball and winds up in our culture and politics. He's got to do it. Jericho Hill continues with us on her tell right after this. Welcome back to Hertel, our friend. He's an economist. He's got letters after his name. He's real smart. He's also personable, and we like him. Jericho Hill, a uh, frequent guest here on Hertel program. We love having him. All right, buddy. Hot seat time. We're going to go through some headlines because here's the thing. I see, I've been doing this for a little while now. There's a pattern to how the economy is covered. I know we have the joke on social media about how everything is unexpectedly, right? There's a pattern to how news media and social media covers economics. So I'm just going to read through some headlines. These are all headlines from within the last 24 hours. We record this. This is all major publications. This ain't crank stuff. Let's see your reactions to it. And let's see if we can find a couple patterns. So, in so here. none of this is from the Babylon Bee is what you're saying. There's no Babylon Bee. There's no onion. There's no, no funny business. All right. Uh, nothing from the Logan Free Press where this is all on the up and up. Okay. Uh, let's start. CNN headline. I'm just going to read the headline. You react. The strange reason America's economy is shrinking. Um, yeah, that's not really a helpful headline. <laughs> well, maybe this one will help. Wall Street Journal, 19 hours difference here. U.S. economy still shrinking. So I guess they're keying on, um, yeah, I guess they're keying on the, on the GDP numbers. So, um, yeah, that, that's what they're writing about. They're just solely focused on GDP. Well, and just in case we didn't get the point yet, New York Times, exact same time frame within a couple of hours. Uh, big tech is proving resilient as the economy cools. Oh, we're not shrinking now. Now we're cooling. How does that one land with you? Uh, you know, I, I think I think it's more correct to say to say shrink, although I would simply, you know, I think that that word's a little charged, too. But cooling, 
so so the new york times is is, is i think in some respects trying to look at more than just one facet but you know i i think that that in and of itself like also has its own particular sort of that you know the other two headlines that you read to me you know seem to be more exactly specifically focused on gdp shrunk year over year and you're correct because new york times goes into the tech company slowing their hiring processes so well yeah. spotted uh here we go Reuters, of course major international newsing apple the company not the fruit forecasters faster sales growth strong iphone demand despite glum economy so we went from slowing to uh cooling now we're glum economy uh what do you think of Reuters? uh I would hesitate to call this a gloomy economy. Again, I, I, I see there are good aspects going on and very bad aspects. They're just trying to contrast that Apple's having unexpectedly good news, so to speak, using that lovely word, unexpectedly. Uh, NPR, U.S. economy just had a second quarter of negative growth, period. Is this a recession? Question mark. Probably the best headline out of all of them. Yeah, you like that one? Why? Uh, you know, it, it, it's it, it's factual. We had two quarters of negative GDP growth, and then the question is: Is this a recession? And then I'm sure the article goes into the the various caveats that go on there. But that's that's at least the correct characterization of of what is going on. Now, I wish all these that we had was like, hey, Americans are still feeling pain. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to link to these, by the way, so you can read them in your entirety if you so choose to. Okay, here we go. Washington Post, something I use a lot on this program. Uh, GDP, report, GDP report shows U.S. economy shrank again in the second quarter. Now, here's the interesting part of this headline, though, because of the way they do it. Here's the subheading. The latest GDP reading comes at a time of mounting worries about the economy's resilience. So there they're focusing on uh, basically what we see from surveys uh, that shows how do people feel about this economy right now. And so, th- and I think this is an interesting point. And I, I, I'm still trying to struggle to understand why the American public is sort of feeling this way. When we do surveys of sort of economic, you know, temperature, you know, economic, you know, feelings, whatnot, today people are more gloomy and pessimistic and downrating the economy than during the worst part of the great financial crisis. I have a mm. hard time squaring that because like, again, for me, you know, one, you're, if you're unemployed, you know, that that's really bad. You're, you're, we have high inflation. So some of your earnings are being eroded. The way I try to explain this paradox is that, if you're if you're if it's an unemployment you know driven recession, which is what the great financial crisis was in some respects, right, with double digit unemployment, which we never hit this time around, uh, a small minority of people are feeling a hell of a lot of the pain. And in this whatever this is, this downturn, I'll just call it a downturn because I think that's closer to what it is than the recession itself. Then this downturn. We don't have unemployment. Everybody's got their jobs, but everybody is feeling the pain of inflation for the most part. So maybe that explains the paradox of of why folks are viewing this economy as worse than the great financial crisis. All right. This one's CNN International, but I love the... 
somebody that runs a website, this one's I, I would absolutely just tear somebody to pieces if they sent me a subheading that was this far off the headline. Here it is, CNN International. Europe's economy surprisingly grew last quarter, easing recession fears for now, for now's in parentheses, subheading. But Germany, the region's biggest economy, stagnated in the second quarter, official data showed on Friday. Inflation continues to push higher. Doom huh? cells. Doom <laughs> cells. How's that one hit you? I, again, that's what it tells me. It's like, hey, that Europe got good news overall, but let's focus on one piece of the puzzle. And by the way, that, that Germany is a very big part of, of the European economy and rightly should be focused on because, you know, it, it sort of helps drive their ship. But yeah, it, it's sort of like, hey, we got good news, but all these other things. Like a doctor's coming to you that says, hey, your cancer just got cured, but you've got all these other things. And it's like, but my cancer got cured, right? Yeah, really. Okay, pair of headlines from Bloomberg because these are just, I just want your reaction. Uh, Yellen, that would be Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, the Honorable Janet Yellen. Yellen says U.S. economy not seeing recession conditions now. Boy, there's a couple qualifiers in that sentence, but go ahead. What do you think? So, yeah, she is being more like the folks that actually date recessions, the folks from the National Bureau of Economic Research, where they're looking at multiple factors. So she's providing that necessary caveat, um, you know, instead of saying, well, we sort of, we're sort of, like, we're, we're not, we're not in a recession right now, but of course we still have the risk of, of, of having that if, say, the employment picture started to change, right? You've seen a bunch of articles, you even reference some of them, of the tech companies stopped hiring and and you get some of that, well, now you're seeing job postings go down. Yeah, in certain respects, but the labor market's still really tight for vast majority of folks. So we're just not seeing the labor market story being a story of recession. But again, Yellen's job is to right, be a part of team executive Biden and you know, essentially downplay the recessionary or the, the downturn risk right now. One more, because you just mentioned Biden. Uh, I find this headline insulting to my intelligence, but we'll see how it lands with you. Bloomberg headline, Biden loses bragging rights against China with U.S. economy fading. There's two bullet points under this. President had touted forecasts for U.S. to grow more than China and U.S. expansion now seen slowing as inflation takes a bite. China has its own issues right now with yet another lockdown. And who knows whether the statistics coming out of China in any way reflect the reality that's going on in China. At least with our at least with our US statistics, we have some belief, and I think a very good belief, that the data scientists producing those estimates are actually getting it right. Right? It's very transparent here. It's not so transparent over there. So yeah, I I, I react poorly to, to to that because we don't really understand the full picture of what's going on in China and other headlines that have come out of of the Chinese economy, right? Do not paint a very good picture of what their economy is doing right now. Funny you mention that because I got one of them right here. Uh, Forbes, uh, not a crank publication. Way to segue it. Uh, by the way, China, 
some other time we'll dig into this. China has a workforce of 750 million people. Our whole country has 330 million people. You you got you can't do apples to apples with China on a lot of ways, not just because of the Communist Chinese Party. It's a totally different beast than what we're doing. So you're you're gonna a, always look dumb doing that comparison anyway. It's also a totally different economy, right? So you think yes. about the U.S. as a service sector based economy. We talked about that one of the last times. You know, we were having we you and I were chatting. China is largely manufacturing still. Those are going to react differently to different sort of uh, different sort of world economies. Yeah. All right. Last one. Forbes. China's economy is still looking worryingly weak. Key data shows, and this is more recent than the other headline, but about the same time frame. So I just love that one. So go ahead, juxtapose those those two for me. Yeah. Well, the latter is probably more closer to the truth than the former. Thank you for that in-depth analysis, Mr. Economist. <laughs> no, it's true because I agree with you. You can't trust the numbers coming out of China. You can't trust the Western bloviating about the numbers coming out of China. Uh, just always be very suspicious of those and numbers. We, but we know that the China, like we know that China has their zero, 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 zero COVID policy, and they still have a policy of lockdowns in various places. And I'm not getting into whether that's a good policy or a bad policy. Right. I'm coming into a little bit. There is a cost. The U.S. Yeah. has said we are now vaccinated enough or we no longer care enough, whichever you want to pick, um, that we are not going to be shutting down our ports or anything else. And it's going to be essentially business is somewhat usual. Still, you know, there's still things that are different about our economy. But, you know, we're we're open back up. Right. People are going on vacations. We don't have lockdowns anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, you know, whether or not, you know, we're right in that policy versus China, we'll know in 10 years. Yeah, with China, you always watch their actions, not their words and not their propaganda. Their actions will tell you what they're actually doing. Don't don't read the pamphlet on the Silk Road. Watch where they're actually building stuff. You know, that kind of thing. Just watch their actions. They're not real subtle in what they do. They're they're very good at what they say, not matching that. But watch what they do, because you you can't hide it in their actions. So that's the way to handle that. Jericho Hill, great stuff today. That's fun going through the headlines. That's a little easier than going through the theory of things. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until they see you again on Hertel, which will be very soon. Well, you can always find me on Twitter at Motoconomist. And uh, essentially, I'll be uh, enjoying the month of August because uh, I will uh, not only be watching my little girl turn four years old, uh, I apparently also have a birthday and uh, just. I won't disclose what my actual age is because I'm getting up there in years. <laughs> You're going to be another one of those that turns out to be younger than me. It's going to make me mad and throw things. So let's just move along. Uh, happy uh, birthday, my friend. I, I, I think you and I are actually about the same age. I hope so because I'm, I'm running out of folks that I'm younger than. Uh, happy birthday, my friend. Your daughter is just, a, matter of fact, she was just being born when we first started um, becoming friendly. So it's kind of an interesting mile marker that she's for. It's like, holy God, I've known this guy four years already. Yeah, uh, we, you. We, We've built her first playhouse outside. So. Oh, my Lord. It's four, four. Once you get past, everybody says two. No, three's the worst. Four to about eight, nine, ten, depending on the kid. That's the happy spot. That's all the good years. So just enjoy it, my friend. I will um, definitely enjoy it. Yeah, Jericho Hill, you do great work. This was great. We'll do it again real soon. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. Have a good day. Anytime, sir.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Let's go to Africa. We've been talking about it periodically, various things. A lot of geopolitics cross paths down in Africa. It's been that way for hundreds of years. It will be like that for the next hundred years. But right now in the here and now, there's some really important stuff going on with some very familiar world players that we do see in the news media. Let's go to another one of our great Young Voices contributors. He is an intern at the Initiative for African Trade and prosperity. He's studying a master's at the London School of Economics. And if you're from Logan and don't know what that is, they don't just let you walk in there. That's a prestigious thing. That's kind of an important school. Uh, Alexander Jalo, and how are you, sir? I'm doing good, Andrew. Thank you for the nice introduction. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about Africa. Thrilled to be with you. Let's start big picture. And we deal with truth. We talk all the time. One of our core values on this program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Africa has always been somewhat chaotic. Uh, the Horn of Africa and Somalia, that has been conflict for all of yours and mine lifetimes. We know about Somalia, Black Hawk Down, all that stuff. We know the problems in Central Africa. Libya in the north is a failed state. We know about the issues in South Africa, even though that's more of a developed area. They still have problems. Africa has always been a problem. Africa has always had something of a power vacuum. And there's been colonial and imperialistic interest in Africa for as long as there's been recorded human history. These problems aren't new. Just the players are new and they're familiar players to us, people like China, like Russia. Give us the big picture of what's going on in Africa right now today. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. I think your your premise is absolutely true where Africa was, you know, a very big deal back in the Cold War time, um, you know, different kind of spheres of influence, Soviet influence, uh, American influence. And then fast forward to today and, you know, after about maybe two decades or so of things kind of calming down there in terms of, you know, who the major players are with the U.S. kind of taking that role. Um, now we see a huge resurgence of, you know, what I really see as authoritarianism from the Chinese and the Russians um, and then the, the United States. So if I had to characterize the situation right now, I think you have an interesting play where you have two authoritarian regimes in Russia and China that are slowly and steadily kind of creeping and, and um, furthering their interests into that region of the world. And you have the U.S. and the West kind of backtracking and trying to respond to that. Um, so we can get into a little bit about kind of the ins and outs of how that's going on, um, kind of the economic, political, uh, foreign policy interests that each side has. Um, but it is a big deal because Africa is growing, um, not just population-wise, but also economically. Um, they're going to play an increasingly important role uh, as, as the future goes on. And so I think if the U.S. doesn't respond to, to these threats, um, we'll be in for uh, some some long-term trouble if we don't make a pivot right now, in my opinion, um, in our strategy down there. So, yeah. What is the biggest thing we need to pay attention to in Western media, though? Because there's a lot of stuff we're going to move. We're going to work through an article that you wrote here in just a second. There's so many moving parts to this. China, Russia. Um, there was just a big CNN report about Russia and doing the gold mining and how they're stripping resources that way. China's after the rare earth minerals because they have a, a lock on the battery and those sorts of things for you know high-end components. There's so much going on. And then there's all the internecine strife inside of Africa that's always been there. Our Western media has never been great at covering Africa. What's some of the core things we need to know before we dig into the details here that a Western audience, an American audience that's not familiar with Africa, that we kind of need to have some ground rules in dealing with something that's so big as this? Absolutely. I think it's really the military considerations. Um, so I'll speak on that briefly, really quickly. Um, over the past five years, China has been extending its military influence into the region, um, which is something they had not 
been capable of doing before. Um, so back in 2017, they opened their first military base in East Africa um, in a small country called Djibouti. Um, kind of a funny name, but you know, it's geostrategically positioned in East Africa, um, an important region of the world. And it does beg the question, why would China be attempting to spread its influence into that region? Um, and then recently there've been fears uh, that have come out from the Department of Defense talking about the potential of China opening another base um, over in West Africa in Equatorial Guinea. Um, that would be their first base uh, in the Atlantic. Um, and so as far as what a Western audience needs to be concerned with, um, this idea that China is slowly moving bases closer um, to, to our region of the world and into regions that they previously had not really been privy to um, is certainly worrying. Now, on the flip side of that, Russia has also been getting increasingly um, interested in African politics and African regimes. Um, they have been doing a very odd sort of strategy where they don't have a lot of economic ties with Russia, but what they've been doing is sending in mercenary forces to often kind of quell rebellions or uh, the threat of Islamic terrorism or things of that nature. And then once their mercenary groups are there, um, the Russians don't tend to leave. And now they kind of have a, a stranglehold um, in certain areas, try to reach into places like the Suez Canal um, and kind of spread their influence that way. So in terms of what's direct, relatable and, and applicable to a Western audience, um, I would certainly say kind of the military jockeying of Russia and China is is definitely something that we need to be very aware of. Um, and if we're not, we can kind of find ourselves behind the eight ball, um, which I know we definitely do not want to do. What is it about China? Because here's the problem with China. The CCP and their many, many minions in social media and in the traditional news media, they they get really upset if you call them imperialistic or colonial. Mm -hmm. There's no other way to describe what they're doing in Africa as imperialistic and colonial. Now, they're not doing it so much militarily, although that's starting to happen as well. They're doing it financially. They're doing yeah. it through offering uh, loans. They're doing it through what I would call, and many others have, predatory debt. And then they foreclose. We've seen this in Sri Lanka and other places, and now we're seeing it in Africa where they use predatory debt to get infrastructure interests and take over important infrastructure, airports, ports, things like this. How do we address that? Because the propaganda arm of China is mighty and it's long reaching, but the facts on the ground say, hey, actions, not words. This is what they're doing and they're doing it purposefully and they have a long plan involved here. You're absolutely right, Andrew. And I think that um, it would be one thing, you know, if, if China was actually interested in helping, uh, you know, build infrastructure, um, it, you know, we just want to develop Africa out of the kindness of our hearts. Um, unfortunately, that's certainly kind of not what they are trying to do. Um, you're absolutely right that they do use uh, loans and financing as ways to get countries kind of hooked on Chinese financing. And then they use that to leverage them uh, or to, to have political leverage over those countries in the future. We've seen that very recently. Um, a lot of African countries used to have uh, diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Um, every country in Africa has abandoned Taiwan except for Eswatini, tiny little country in Southern Africa. Um, and China has been putting pressure on them to break off their diplomatic relationship with Taiwan um, and kind of, you know, get rid of that relationship and recognize China as having the right to that area and things like that. So as far as what the U.S. needs to do, that's really the, the, the key to the question here. I think that the U.S., in order to respond to this, needs to prove itself to be um, integral to Africa's development going forward. And they need to make sure that African leaders see us that way. America still is by far the largest consumer market. Um, we are significantly wealthier than China. Um, we have the ability to purchase much more uh, than they do. And so what my opinion is, what we need to do is expand kind of how trade is done with Africa right now and use that as a catalyst 
to get African states to recognize that we can be the most important partner for them going forward in their development goals instead of Chinese debt trap diplomacy, which has been getting less and less popular among African leaders, which is a positive sign. So if you want to go into the AGOA a little bit, I think that could be could be a wise idea. Now, here's the problem, and you touched in on your piece. Yeah. Money doesn't solve everything. Money also creates its own set of problems. But it's almost like when we watch like a mob movie where the mob, they're like, hey, if we're fighting, we're not making money. Isn't the pitch, though, with trade, and this is on a very basic level of, hey, everybody can make money here. And if everybody's busy making money, just some of the human nature stuff is they're going to want to keep making money. And when people are fighting, they're not making as much money. That's a really dis distilled down simplistic view of it to take it to a movie after. But that's basically what we're pitching them with free trade is like, look, all of you can rise all boats here if you stop fighting and do X, Y, Z. And if you get the right kind of partners, that's basically the pitch, right? I think that is part of the pitch. I wouldn't say that's the entire thing. You know, I, I do think that there is appetite in Africa um, for democracy, for human rights. Um, people are very skeptical of Chinese interests, uh, the way China runs. It's kind of authoritarian grip um, on its own people. And so I wouldn't say that, you know, free trade and wealth is the only motivating factor, but I would certainly say that plays an inter a integral part. Um, so along with that, what I would say is I believe that African countries that do engage with trade in the United States definitely do benefit. There have been a number of countries um, in the past decade or so that have significantly developed different sectors through um, trading relationships with the United States. Now, whether or not we'll be able to use that as enough leverage to say, hey, abandon Chinese financing and come to us will be um, something only really time can tell. But I would say this for sure. The deepening relationship of economic ties between America and Africa um, is absolutely integral if we want to keep our influence over there. Um, there's a, kind of an isolationist mood right now in the United States. Um, I hope that we can kind of work against that as time goes on, um, because like it or not, the world is much smaller than it used to be. And we need strategic partners around the world. And a great way to do that is through economic ties and getting African producers and African consumers to recognize the benefits of having access to the U.S. market. So. Yeah, Alexander Joe and joining us and great Young Voices contributor. We're talking Africa. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to dig into this piece he has at 1828 a little bit. We're going to talk about the American policy, what it should be, what we want it to be, what it actually is, why those three things can't ever seem to match up at the same time in the same place. More with our friend Alexander on Hertel right after the break. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. We got our friend Alexander back on. We're talking Africa. Um, we talk real here. We deal with the real world on this program. Let's just be honest about American policy. Part of the problem with foreign policy and financial policy, for that matter, is there's a certain amount of inconsistency built into our system. We have presidential elections every four years. Congress turns over every two years. We, The American people tend to like gridlock. They like split government for the most part. Some of this is built into the cake, but when we're dealing with foreign policy, the two most important things when we're dealing with foreign powers is consistency and cohesiveness. People got to know what we're going to do and know that we're going to do it. America has been really, really bad at that for the last 
30, 40 years, basically my entire lifetime for the most part since the end of the Cold War. What do we do to change that? Because it's hard to pitch things like we will be your trade partner. China's got a 50-year plan. They don't have the Russian five-year plan. They plan way in ahead. So people are looking like, yeah, I'm making a deal with the devil, but at least I know what I'm getting. That's part of the problem here, yes? Yeah. No, I, I do agree with that, Andrew. I would say, too, I think what has been a good development in the U.S., is there does seem to be kind of a consolidation from both sides, Republicans and Democrats, that increasing Chinese influence in the world is problematic. Um, I have a lot of disagreements with the Biden administration, but one thing I have enjoyed that they do is they will speak out against China and they sent Pelosi over to Taiwan recently. And so um, they seem to be, in my opinion, willing to fight back against that. So in terms of what we need to do as a national strategy, I absolutely agree. We have had a very disjointed um, couple decades of policy towards Africa. And for a lot of it, it seems like we kind of took them for granted. They were not necessarily the most important partner of us. Um, and we did not really give them, I think, the uh, respect and, and um, kind of uh, attention that they needed. So going forward, what I think certainly needs to happen is you're absolutely right. A cohesive, coherent strategy about what we want to see from Africa and what they need to see from us. Um, and I think the best way to do that is to A, increase our diplomatic relations and actually begin to speak on the world stage, putting African issues at the very top um, of our foreign policy considerations and B through economic ties. Um, those two combined, if we could really nail those down and prove to African states and African leaders that we mean business, uh, I think that would go a long way in pushing back China's influence um, in, in pretty much the near future if possible. You use a term in the piece, utilization strategies. Um, you're, you're bouncing that off of what uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese are doing with the Belt and Road Initiative. They've got billions of dollars they're pouring into that thing. We probably can't do anything like that for a lot of reasons. But break that terminology down for us. Just go through the nomenclature, utilization strategies. What are you talking about? Because, again, this is not theory. This is stuff where you're actually going to have to kind of do some practical stuff to win people over, right? Yes. And now, so in terms of utilization strategies, what that's connected to is the AGOA. So right now, I'll do a quick history on the African Growth and Opportunity Act. This was a uh, bill passed in 2000, basically gives African producers a lot of access to the American market. So goods made in Africa are often duty free, tax free, can be shipped here easier um, and get preferential access to American consumers. It should make it cheaper, easier for them to develop, things of that nature. Now, utilization strategies are key in this because currently under the AGOA, they are not required. What a utilization strategy is, is it requires a country um, that has the benefits of trade under the AGOA, and it makes them make a cohesive strategy for how they can use their comparative advantage to take advantage of the access given to them by the U.S. market. So basically, a quick example of that, um, let's say Tanzania comes up with an AGOA uh, utilization strategy about, okay, well, we produce grain. We are able to export that to the U.S. cheaper under the AGOA than other countries around the world because it's specifically a preferential deal for Africa. We're going to make a strategy of how to go about taking advantage of the access we have to the U.S. market. Um, it has worked very well. There's about 18 countries that have made utilization strategies and it's deepened trade ties with America. But when the AGOA gets expanded in 2025, it's kind of up for re-election um, or um, 
the AGOA in 2025 is going to be renewed or expanded. Um, and so I believe that we need to make that a requirement where every country needs to have a utilization strategy in order to have a cohesive plan for how to access the U.S. market. And that has been shown to increase trade ties, which I think would go a long way um, in, in deepening economic relationships. So that's what that term means. Um, I'm pushing for that to occur in 2025. Um, I think it would certainly be a wise idea, and I don't really believe there's a good reason not to. How's that going to? How does that look, though? Is that going to be a treaty thing? Is that going to be a UN thing? Is that going to be in a bilateral with individual countries? Give me a framework for that. Yeah. Well, the AGOA is a piece of legislation that was passed by the U.S. Congress, so it's not a UN thing. Um, it, it's nothing in that uh, sphere. What it is is a a way that the U.S. goes about dictating trading relationships with Africa specifically. So it doesn't take into account, you know, the UN um, or groups like that, and it's not bilateral in terms of one U.S. state going to a specific single country in Africa. Rather, it deals with Africa as a block of countries um, going forward. Great. Alexander Joe and joining us. Uh, just to put a kind of a cap on this, let's go back to where we started. Africa is a big place. It's a diverse place. It's got a lot of moving parts. How important, because again, like we started with, China's consistent more than we are consistently bad, but they are consistent. How do we get this consistency? You talk about this being a good concrete first step. Mm -hmm. What's the second and third step? Because that's the key to the consistency we say that's been lacking in these kind of policies. Yeah, it's a messaging thing, Andrew, you know, and, and it's a U.S. diplomatic ties thing where if the United States federal government wants to portray itself as long term interested in African development, it's going to need to be a more consistent uh, messaging platform from the government. So quick Backstory on that. In 2014, Barack Obama held the first U.S.-Africa summit. Um, I think that was a good first step in deepening African trade ties. However, seven, eight years have passed, and now the second one will be held in 2022. In my opinion, that's far too long to allow these trade summits not to occur. Um, in my view, that should be a, maybe every two to three years we're having consistent summits with African leaders, with business leaders, oftentimes in Africa itself, and deepening that relationship going forward. We can't be so sporadic in our choice to engage with them. Um, I think doing that will have a long-term impact, and it will actually much more mirror what the Chinese are doing, where they consistently hold meetings with African leaders. They consistently have envoys down there. They consistently have high-level business executives in Africa, where they're working on building these relationships. So I think expanding the AGOA, following that up with diplomatic ties, um, is really a good recipe to get us on the road to success here. And, you know, there will be things that happen in the future that we can't see right now. Um, but by doing both of those, I think we can do a long, uh, get ourselves on the road to, to kind of winning Africa back into our good graces. Yeah, great stuff, Alexander. Let folks know where they can follow you. We'll have you back on this topic because this isn't going away anytime soon. This is going to be something we're going to be dealing with probably generationally at least. Till we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to link to your piece in 1828. Please read the entire thing. Tell us where they can find you and follow you until we get you back, my friend. Yeah, well, you guys can find me on Twitter at A-J-E-L-L-O-I-A-N. Ajeloyan. Also, I would encourage you to check out our uh, website at uh, theiatp.org. That's Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. We do a lot of work on Sub-Saharan Africa, different trade deals and policies that are going on down there. I'm trying to spread economic freedom and free trade uh, going forward. So that's where you can find me. Yeah, and we're going to keep covering Africa because it's a big part of the world and the other parts of the world are all converging there. Alexander Gio, and great having you, sir. We'll have you back soon. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it.
Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, here's the thing. Everybody talks about something like CPAC. We're going to talk to somebody that was actually there, turned down the noise on a file that was actually going on. National narratives sometimes don't always give the pictures. So let's talk to somebody that was actually there. Our friend Chris Schlack is with us. He was there on the ground. He's a graduate of the University of Texas. But for the purposes of this discussion, we will not hold that against him. He's also an intern fellow at U.S. Today. How you doing, my friend? Thank you for the time. Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, appreciate your time. Okay, let's start big picture here. For folks, in case they don't know, what is CPAC? Because this used to be the once a year gathering of the American Conservative Union. It was a thing, really big deal. This is kind of a different beast now because it's turned into a little bit of a roadshow. They're taking it around the world. They're taking it around. They've been to Hungary. They've been to parts in the U.S. This was the Dallas one or the Texas one. I saw it promoted as both. Just talk about how this is a little may have thought of as CPAC traditionally. Yeah, so CPAC is uh, the Conservative Political Action Committee. And um, traditionally in the past, they'd have um, distinguished speakers like George Will and Mitch Daniels. And um, it'd be an annual thing. And um, recently, it doesn't seem anything like uh, what it used to be. Um, if you just watched YouTube videos of uh, CPAC in the past, it just it's nothing like it is today. Today it's uh, it's um, it, like you said, a road show. It, it's all around the world. It was in Israel, and um, it's th- there's a lot of like circus like antics that, in my perspective, a little disappointing. Um, I, I I would like to experience the CPAC of the past. Yeah, and you wrote in USA Today a piece inside CPAC. Let's start there. You're a Texas guy anyway. This was in Texas. When you went, what was the environment on the ground there? I know, see, the only the big things get headlines. Trump gives a speech. Orban gives a speech. We'll get into the crazy theatrical stuff that trended on social media. But mostly these are just regular people showing up for the show of it. When you're just walking through the halls, the vendor tables, these things, what's the atmosphere? What's the kind of people you're running into? The people that I'm running into are very Trumpy. Um, they're, they're usually all decked out in either Trump stuff or conservative stuff. On the first day, there wasn't that much Trump stuff, but uh, on the third day, it was just all Trump stuff because that's when he was speaking. Um, yeah, the people uh, very supportive of him. Um, the, there was there was some like some silly moments like um, people saying hoorah, like like they were in the military or something. Uh, yeah, there, there was some there's a lot of silliness, but um, it was mostly a very, very, very MAGA. Um, when you're when you're talking to these folks, you talk about them being decked out. What's your feel when you're actually in the room, though? Is it believers? Is it people that are like a spectator sport? You go to the show, you wear the team jersey. Is there a ratio between those two things? How did it feel when you're actually in the room with these folks? Uh, it seemed seemed to me like the majority were true believers um, based on the reactions in the crowds. Um, a lot of them... Uh, cheered to everything a typical Trump supporter would cheer to. Uh, a lot of cheering for 2,000 mules um, whenever that was mentioned in a positive light. Um, and same thing for um, anti-vax kind of um, kind of talk at the when people were speaking. So it, I, I think a lot of them were actual true believers. There were like instances of uh, like guys in yarmulkes with uh, Trump's face on it. <laughs> um, there was uh, one guy with uh, Trump's face on his shirt and, it, and under it, um, there was white bold text that said sexiest man alive. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, 
a lot of it seemed to me like a lot of people um were actual true believers not just you know putting on a a jersey when you're when you're doing this you talk i know the silly folks start to trend really really fast you dealt with some of these you're tweeting some of them out on your social media um what's the really ones that kind of got your attention because you get the folks in the convention hall that are let's just call it what it is they're kind of getting their attention that sort of thing what's a couple of those because you tweeted some of them out but what's the ones that kind of really jumped out at you a few of them yeah so uh, one of them that i did tweet out was uh um brandon straka he's the founder of um hashtag walk away which is about former democrats walking away from the democrat party he's a really trumpy kind of guy and um he was at january he was at the capitol on january 6th and um he got arrested for you know a litany of things at um the capitol and um so he put on this performance art where uh they had like an actual cage next to the walk away booth and um he had an orange jumpsuit and a maga hat on and he um sat in a chair in the cage and uh pretended to cry um for like hours like i was actually a little impressed by how how long he was able to pretend to cry and every once in a while he would get up from his chair and um right on the chalkboard um it, you know where's everybody and you know he'd count the days um on on the chalkboard too and um so i was i was um getting pictures of that and all and and then all of a sudden you know these huge security guys come over and you know they they, they push everyone away and you know next thing i know marjorie taylor green is like right in front of me and then she goes inside the cage with brandon and like gets on her knees and like pretends to wipe away his pretend tears <laughs> and like pretends to console him and and then um some some random guy um in front of the cage just uh like you know extends his arms and like you know pretends to i guess be in solidarity with them and so he just starts um he starts saying the lord's prayer and everyone starts doing it with him and um people were saying you know marjorie taylor green went in there to to pray with brandon but no some random dude just started praying out loud and uh, everyone just joined along so um it just kind of reached peak absurdity at that point so i just took a picture of that and posted it on twitter and um it it, it went pretty viral marjorie taylor green part and then a few people have picked up on the struggle part but you're saying this went on for hours oh yeah he was he was crying for hours until he had to speak um and that that speech um was really aggressive so it, it didn't seem like it went um as planned um he he was on a panel with um this guy um representative um brian babin he's a he's a representative for texas congressional 36 district and um he was talking about how no congressman called him at all when he was sitting in a jail cell which he never did he never sat in a jail cell so he lied about that um he actually um got out of jail time because he was cooperating with the feds and uh, ratting out all of his buddies at january 6. so um he was complaining he was you know acting like he was a victim he was you know getting really upset and he was basically turning the crowd against brian babin just this one congressman and saying why didn't you do anything and brad babin was you know a little shaken you know he his voice was shaky and people were just like from the crowd heckling him and saying why didn't you do anything well you know what's wrong with you and like it, it got really bad and it was after that moment that everyone showed up at the 
um, walkaway booth and the Marjorie Taylor Greene thing happened. And it, it just, yeah, like I said, reached peak absurdity at that point. Because we only get to see it in glimpses and you're there. Did the Mar the Marjorie Taylor Greene, was that planned or spontaneous? How, what is your feel on, especially with the context think, you just gave with the speech? Was, was yeah. that planned? That had to be planned yeah, then. It, right? it, it that's had to be planned because she was talking about no congressman calling her and all that. I mean, call, calling him and all that. And so I, I'm, I assume Marjorie Taylor Greene got word of that or she was listening to the speech. And so she, um, in an act of performance, um, showed up and um, pretend, pretended to console him. But, you know, since he was, you know, going so hard at Brian Babin for not co contacting him, I'm, I was actually surprised that she that I mean, that he um, let her, you know, play along in his performance art because she never called him either. Right. So, like, I, I mean, I was I was surprised, like, why, why is why is he playing along with her? Why isn't he like calling her out for, you know, not calling him while she was in the cage? Yeah, some there was definitely some emails exchanged or text messages, and that got planned out. Let's be honest here. Obviously, yeah. though, if he's going after a sitting congressman, they're all up for elections, so somebody's somewhere in there. On Twitter, it was fun watching it because, of course, you know I'm a I'm of a different group, so I was watching it on Twitter unfold, and everybody was they were all immediately like, "Wait a minute, he's the guy that ratted everybody else out, and that's why he's not in prison." But did people there in the room not put those two together? They got Google on their phone, right? They could Google who this guy is while they're standing there. Did you see any hint oh, of that, or was it just oh, going no. on with the show? No, every, everyone was very supportive of him. Everyone believed every word he said. And this guy was definitely swindling everyone, but everyone um, was, like, pretending. Like, there were people, I'm not sure if they were actually crying, but there were people who were, like, actually crying, like, seeing him, cr like, pretend to cry. Um, and um, they also gave out, like, silent disco headsets to um to to hear what brandon was saying but also there was like multiple channels and one channel um you get to hear what the stories of other january 6 prisoners um had and um yeah people were seemed you know very upset about what was going on and um there were a lot of reporters around the cage and one of them had a mask on and so people started to target her. <laughs> um, she was a reporter from Vice, and um, one person was really loud and really vocal saying, you know, she's from Vice, she's going to slander him, you know, just really defend, really defensive of, uh, of uh, Brandon Straka. And uh, people, like, started to, sort of, like, crowd around her, and um, she had a, and, you know, before she could, like, before it got, like, bad, um, that's when Marjorie Taylor Greene showed up, and so the focus was now on Marjorie Taylor Greene, not on this, you know, vice reporter who's just taking pictures and trying to do her job. Did you see a lot of uh, other instances with that? Because CPAC's a big event, although this isn't as big as the national one, but Trump was there, so obviously it was a heightened event. Did you see a lot of regular mainstream press, for lack of a better term? Were they there? Were they kind of a low-key presence? Was there other incidences like that? Um. To me, it seemed like most of the mainstream press showed up um, on the third day when Trump was speaking. Um, but um, regarding like just walking around, um, there there were maybe just a few reporters doing that. I, I know Vice is known for um, going to right wing events and like reporting on you know quote unquote extremism, um, but that's like just a Vice thing. So I, I didn't re I couldn't I didn't really get to see the credentials of um, everyone else. But uh, 
yeah, I mean, I talked to her and um, she said that um, she was, you know, she was being targeted all day because of her mask, you know, <laughs> like she was doing with the mask. There was more people with masks on in the media than, you know, in the whole audience. So people could easily tell, like, she's not on our side. Yeah. Uh, Chris Schlock joining us. He was at PAC. Um, something else you brought up in your experience there and writing about it. You talk about the conspiracy theories. How prevalent was it? Because the, it's easy for the outside mainstream press and the national area to be like, oh, it's just a conspiracy fest. How much of a theme was it? How constant was it? The conspiracy theories, not just the election but some of the other stuff now, again, timeline wise, remember this is a week ago. So this is before Trump and the search warrant and all that, the we're targets, we're victims, Trump's innocent, all of that kind of stuff. How prevalent really was it? You know, I, I wish, I wish um, that the mainstream media was wrong about this, but there, there were a ton of conspiracy theorist stuff um, and boots. When you walk in, the first one you see is, uh, Real America's Voice News, and you know they're known, and they were like presenting like Steve Bannon's War Room show, um, and you know that guy is is known for all kinds of fringe ideas and and conspiracy theories. Um, and there were, you know, Mike Lindell was there, but you know he's more of just a election was stolen kind of conspiracy theorist. But then there was like Jack Posobiec, um, the PizzaGate conspiracy theorist kind of guy. I mean, he basically hops on any trendy conspiracy theory. There was a uh, one booth called Grid Down Power Up, um, which is a conspiracy theory about the electric grid um, being controlled um, by elites and you know going to be shut down. You know, uh, and some sort of sinister motive there. Uh, but yeah, there were there were a lot of conspiracy booths and um, politicians who embraced conspiracy theories, like Sid Miller. Um, and uh, there was also the you know, Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCulloch, who um, who believe that the vaccine it has a sinister motive to it. And um, I mean, a lot of it was, you know, sort of what's already mainstream in the GOP, like um, the anti-vax stuff and the election was stolen stuff. But um, there was also some other fringe conspiracy theories that um, the GOP hasn't, you know, wholly embraced yet talking about these things um because we human nature is what it is but we don't want to always pigeonhole everybody i'm sure there's a spectrum involved here oh yeah how much of it do you think is ignorance and how much of it do you think is actually out and out maliciousness because those are two different things to be fair to folks i i imagine there's a portion of people that just get swept up in this stuff and then there's the people like you talk about posebic and these guys who peddle in this because it's their business model Give me a ratio or a feeling. How much of it is, do you think, people going along with the crowd and then people where it gets really malicious and dark, like threatening reporters, like that kind of stuff? I think it's more ignorance. I, I don't think it's that much. I think it's usually a tiny percentage of people that are actually malicious. It seemed like a lot of um, ignorance. Um, but, um, I mean, yeah, there there were definitely true believers of the of these things, some uh, 
some shirts like Alex Jones was right, um, Infowars shirts, and well, there there was like some some Proud Boys there, and like some uh, um, Enrique Tario supporter um, supporters there, and um, he's the found one of the founders of Proud, Proud Boys. Um, so there there were um, the fringe was was not you know shy uh, I'd say at uh, at CPAC, but I don't think that's the majority of people there now we know cpac shoes off um some of the really really vile folks the nick people kind of um who keeps trying to show up nick fuentes we're talking about who keeps trying to show up at these things they did manage to kind of get rid of him and and shoo him off yeah other than that though because he's so extreme that everybody's kind of sure where is the line because they don't seem to be doing a whole lot of policing their own on this stuff do they um yeah i mean I, I i i wish i knew what the line was um i will say that there was this this one like white nationalist group that that you know cpac did not approve of that uh showed up um during a, a time that i wasn't um that I was not there i think it was during the cattleman cattleman's ball I, I i don't really know who showed up also but um there was like you know facebook messages and all that, like come, come to our booth. Um, so, you know, I do think that CPAC is good at policing um, stuff that's like racist, like, you know, Nick Fuentes, white nationalist types. But uh, when it comes to conspiracy theories, I don't think they're as uh, strict. Chris Slack joining us on Hertel. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. A lot of big names. That's what usually gets covered. We're going to talk to him about those big names, what their reactions were in the hall, talk about the attendance, which got a lot of coverage uh, before Trump got there. And then, of course, the main event itself, Donald Trump spoke more about CPAC with our friend Chris Slock right after this on Hertel. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're continuing to talk to our friend Chris Slock. He was at CPAC down in Dallas. I, which was it officially? Because I've seen CPAC Dallas, CPAC Texas. What is the, what does the actual branding on the wall say down there? It's uh, CPAC Dallas. CPAC sure. Dallas. You are the same thing that everybody just called it CPAC Texas. But that's what Texas folks do. They try to take over everything. You're a Texas Longhorn. You know how this goes. Um, that's a little. I'm kidding. I've been. I'm a West Virginia guy. We've uh, had our moments the last few years, my friend. All right. The big names are always the headliners on this. That's how they advertise the event. Let's talk about a few of them. Uh, you were there for this one. Name that's getting more, I think he gets more attention in the press, the mainstream press, than he probably does in conservatives or on conservative media. Rick Scott, of course, he's a powerful. He's a senator. Um, he's in charge of the Senate committees for funding things. He got in a little bit of trouble earlier this year with his plan that wasn't really a plan. Has presidential ambitious, allegedly. 
What was his reaction there? Because he seems like one of those guys that's really having a hard time bridging the gap between what he wants to be and what he thinks he has to be to the base of the party, a.k.a. folks at CPAC. Yeah, um, so there wasn't like that much clapping and cheering when he came out, but um, based on what he said, um, a lot of people were really supportive. Um, he talked about the militant left being the newest threat. You know, in the past, it was communism and um, World War II, World War One. But he said, you know, the militant left, um, the people on our own soil is the newest threat. And so there's a lot of militaristic kind of language that people really seem to love. Um, there's other instances of guys being um, speaking like that. Uh, Mark Robinson was another one um, talking about um, just like being a soldier and dying on the hill and all that. And just a, a lot of over the top kind of military language. Um, yeah, people seem to, to really, really uh, gravitate toward that. It's kind of weird coming from him who ought to know better. He referenced the War of 1812. He referenced the Civil War, World War One, World War II, Vietnam. It wasn't like an offhanded reference. This was kind of a theme for him trying to tie the two together, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Ugh. We'll leave that one alone. Uh, <laughs> name the guy gets a lot of attention. Uh, the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell. He was all over the place on social media on this, but in the halls, in the convention center. Uh, not quite the reception some folks might think he's get. What was his reaction by the people at CPAC? Um, people, people really liked him. Um, he was all over the place. He was at um all kinds of booths doing interviews. Uh, people uh just loved to see him. Yeah, he. I mean, he had a he had a really popular speech as well. Um, people liked what he was saying. I don't remember exactly what he said. Um, so it wasn't that memorable to me, but um. Yeah, um, people seem to be really supportive of Mike. Name that gets more attention overseas than here, but he's gotten a lot of play in conservative and and especially right-wing Trump media. Nigel Farrens, of course, he was you know involved in Brexit and that sort of thing, but he's making a pretty good living over here on the speaking circuit. Mm -hmm. What was the reaction to him? Just like um, just like Orban, it seemed like <clears throat> this you know this guy who was an American it seemed like people didn't really know him that well. Um, but everything he said, uh, people loved, uh, he, you know, he talked about um, Trump being a great president. He talked about fake news. Right. He, he hit on the on every, you know, right wing talking point that, you know, got people riled up. So, um, yeah, I mean, people, people, people seem to like him. An interesting point in his speech, and you mentioned it on your coverage when you were live tweeting about this. He came out real strong for Carrie Lake. That seems like a weird marriage. Like, does he really know who Carrie Lake is other than maybe meeting her? Did, is there a deton like that? That seemed kind of strange that those two would go together. Yet there he was promoting her pretty heavily. People cheered it, of course, because they love her as well. That kind of seemed odd to me. Did it strike you as odd? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot. odd. Um, but it, the whole the whole event was like a Carrie Lake um, and Trump love fest. Um I'd say like almost half the speakers mentioned her name um, and they always got a good cheer out of it. So um, uh, maybe he was just saying, you know, what other speakers were saying, because, I mean, people really loved her. Um, and um, I think on the first day, um, the results still weren't decided. And um, so there was um, definitely some uh, 
some worry over that. But um, I think on the second day it was decided. And so, you know, people were really, really happy. It's odd, though, because Carrie Lake, of course, she's running for governor of um, Arizona. What you're talking about is the GOP nomination was pretty close. They had to. And of course, it's a Western state. So it took a little while with the time difference. So it took about an extra day and a half before we got a conclusive result there. She's now the nominee for the GOP. Kind of weird for a state governor that's, you know, nominee to be the headliner for a CPAC. But like you just mentioned, maybe it was just because of the circumstances. And again, this is in Texas, not in Arizona. If it was in Arizona, it makes sense. Why do you think there was so much focus on that? I've got to think it's because the people who think the election are stolen, they are very focused on Arizona. Is that the main part of that or is there something else involved in it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I um, also think it's um, kind of like she's going up against the mainstream media. She used to work with the media. Now she's against it, calling it the enemy of the people. And um, she's, she's seen as this like um, as this victim. And she's like this, you know, she's this strong hero that's, you know, that's defeated the mainstream media who's against her and defeated her opponent. So I think um, there's this like hero complex to her, kind of like Trump. Couple other ones. Um, Glenn Beck's an interesting one over the Trump years because he was against Trump, campaigned against Trump. There's a famous video from Vegas where he was actually in the room and Trump walked in and pretty much, for lack of a pun, trumped him from speaking and shut him down. Then he did the apology tour. Now he's back full blown on Team Trump. What was his reaction to folks? Oh, people loved him. People loved Glenn Beck. They loved everything he said. He was saying, like, don't ever read mainstream news. Don't don't like don't read a single thing from it um people loved just just loved him um uh he said a lot of trumpy things and um i mean people didn't heckle him like there were there were some speakers that got heckled he he was not one of them so forgiven i guess by the base yeah all right you mentioned it who got heckled who did get heckled who was kind of those those people that didn't either hit the right note or folks just weren't having any of um, so the first one, I, the first, um, speaker event I went to was, uh, one with Greg Abbott. He's, uh, the governor of my state. And, um, there was a, there was a kind of a vicious primary, um, and, um, people were really supportive of the, well, the, the, the really hard, you know, MAGA base is really supportive of, uh, Don Huffines. And so, uh, people were, some people were calling Abbott a rhino and, you know, uh, not conservative enough, but um, the, I'd say most of the crowd was really supportive of, of Abbott and the people who did heckle, like they got um, they got like nasty looks from people. And one of them actually brought security to go um, take one of them out of the out of the event. So um, there was a lot of support for Abbott, but um, some heckling for not being conservative enough. He um, he didn't um end the lockdowns as quickly as okay well yeah i think that's what he got heckled for because it's texas it's you know known to be really conservative and yet he did you know lockdowns and you know mass mandates so people um that's usually that that's what that's what um what people attack him for usually yeah so abbott was one of those and it was a theme other than when trump was there because of course he's the big ticket uh headliner there's a lot of talk of attendance, and one of the ones they talked about was Abbott's speech, that there was a plenty of good seats still available, as Bob Euchard used to say. Um, 
what was the attendance like? Because he was one of those that kind of got some viral attention on social media of like, hey, there's not a lot of attendance here. Talk about the attendance situation. Yeah. So for the first couple of days, I'd say about half the seats were filled. Um, but on the third day, um, all the seats were filled. Um, it seemed like um, really Trumpy event because, you know, there really wasn't um, that many people excited to see all the other speakers as much as they wanted to see Trump. And there was like a lot of um, a lot of cheering and, you know, clapping for like Marjorie Taylor Greene when she spoke and Matt Gates when he spoke um, more so than like other other any of the other speakers. But um, Trump definitely was the one speaker that um, people wanted to see at that event. Yeah. And we'll get to Trump in just a second. OK, the name that got the most mainstream media coverage by far outside of Trump himself, maybe more than in a lot of ways, because we kind of know what a Trump speech at this point is going to be. Viktor Orban, he's the prime minister of Hungary, like you mentioned earlier. They just did a CPAC in Hungary a couple of months ago. So there's obviously a working relationship there. Do people really know who this guy is? I know he stood up. I know he hit all the talking points. He gets the applause lines. He says things that sound conservative to the American conservative ear. Do they really know who he is and what he's about, though? Or was it just, oh, it's this foreign guy that says stuff we like? Yeah, so I'm more on the side of people didn't really know who he was. Um, but some some guy that was working for CPAC thought because there was like some, you know, some like dead silence um, in between the clapping that maybe some people were conflicted um, and knew a bit of him, but, you know, liked what he was saying. I, I think majority of people didn't know him, um, but um, I could be wrong. But uh, yeah, like you said, um, he hit all the conservative talking points. Um, one lady next to me was saying, oh, my goodness, he's amazing. Um, he was telling, you know, conservatives to, you know, curb illegal immigration. And um, he talked about winning the culture war. Um, he talked about Hungary's low flat tax rate. Um, he said Hungary actually built their wall. Um, he called mainstream media fake news, said winnings become our daily habit. Um, he talked about Christian and family values, criticized George Soros, uh, praised law enforcement and, um, talked about law and order. So, um, this guy, you know, really knew what to say. He seemed to understand, um, our movement a little too well. Um, uh, yeah, but people, you know, gave him a standing ovation. They loved everything he said. So it's a little, it's a little disturbing, you know, how, how well he knows uh, the movement and, you know, how ignorant people are of him. And same thing with like Brandon Straka, like people loved everything he said, but, you know, didn't actually do research into saying, you know, this guy's actually fake. Like he, he he's not anything like that, that he says he is. See, I don't want to be Pollyannish here because I, you know, we've been doing this a while. We're all grown folks. We know how this works. This, this is a, this is a preaching to the choir event. People are going to hear what they want to hear. That's why they're going to this. However, in the age we live in now, kids in schools and people at their churches, if something gets said screwy by a teacher or a preacher at your church, the first thing everybody does is jerk out their phone and Google it. That's a thing now in culture. Everybody's doing it. Schools are having to pass rules about it. Colleges are. It's a thing among churches. I was just talking to some friends of the Christian persuasion. They're like, oh, no, this is a thing. You got to be careful preaching because people are fact checking you in real time. Why isn't anybody Googling Brandon Straka? when he's in a cage for four or five hours. Why, like, they, I understand the answer to this, but you tell me your perspective on it. 
that just blows my mind. It's like, oh, this guy's speaking. Maybe I should Google him real fast and learn something about him. Did you see any of that? I didn't see any of it. Um, I think it's because people wanted to believe what he was saying. Um, but I also think it's because like 90% of the audience were, were like really old. Um, I think the like if I could take a guess, the median age was probably around 65, maybe older. There's there are there are a lot of elderly folks there. You you know, look in the crowd and you see a lot of gray hair, you know. Um, so I, I you know, I, I don't think old people are as um um technologically you know capable as as young people so that i mean that could be a good reason why makes sense chris schlock joining us we're going to take one more quick break when we come back the main event of these things donald j trump gets in the building we'll also talk about one of those other factors that we've been kicking around on some of our messaging stuff why cpac might be trending older and older doesn't have anything to do with the politics either uh finish up with cpac our friend chris schlock right after this on herdtail Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Oh, we've been talking about CPAC, not from narratives, not from conjecture, somebody that's actually there in the room. It's how we like to do things here on Hertel. Chris Schlock's joining us, one of our great uh, Young Voices contributors. He's also an intern at USA Today. He's got some good writing, including a piece out on this. Look for that. We're going to link to it in the show notes. Make sure you read it for yourself. Okay, we just talked about the attendance. It was interesting because we do the Young Voices stuff, and I'm also doing the mentoring stuff. So we have you know discussion groups where we talk about things. I found it really interesting. One thing that got brought up by people of why they don't attend CPAC is they talk about how expensive it's gotten. And especially, and I think part of it is it used to be a once a year thing. So people are like, okay, we save up or a lot of, um, a lot of groups fundraise to go to CPAC. A lot of youth, like youth and college, they'd see, they'd fundraise and go to CPAC. That'd be the one year thing. I think with them doing it more and more often, it's just getting expensive and people aren't doing it. You talked about the age demographic. Well, that's the age that's got disposable income and time on their hands. Is that part of what's changing the demographic, not just the politics and ideology, but maybe they're overextending this brand just a little bit too much? Is that a thing? I think that's a that's a good possibility. Um, the the ticket was, I'd say, um, almost three hundred dollars, but the student ticket was fifty dollars. So there there still is an incentive for students to go. But anyone that isn't a student and is in between the, the age of, um, like, say, you know, 20 and, um, I don't know, uh, 60, like, th those, that's not really the age group that I saw there. And, you know, that would make sense. Those, those people aren't students, you know, they don't have a lot of disposable income like, you know, old people do. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, you, you could say price is a reason. And you know, the, the ticket did not include the hotel. So you had to pay for that too. And it was at the Hilton and Anatole hotel, which is a really old hotel, but it's also expensive as well. So, I mean, that could be a good reason. Um, but I also think another reason is um, TPUSA has been having these student action summits and it's just all young people. Um, I was talking to some students at CPAC and they say, yeah, I've, you know, mostly only go gone to, TPUSA, it's like all kids, you know, seeing old people there. So I think TPUSA has been, you know, suctioning away that those, you know, 
kids and students from CPAC and, you know, old people have just been taking over CPAC. So interesting demographic to keep an eye on going forward. Okay. Main event, uh, Trump shows up. Before that, they did the straw poll. He won by 69%. Don't tell me that didn't get gimmicks, but we'll leave that alone for another time. Uh, he wins the straw poll handily. DeSantis is a distant, distant third at like 28-30%. We know the reaction is going to be big. Look, his speeches now are pretty much the greatest hits package. We, we, don't, we don't even have to cover it. We know what he's going to say to these things. Is the enthusiasm in the room still there for this? Were they still hanging on every word? Were they hitting all the applause lines? Oh, absolutely. Every, every single word. Um, I will say because his speech seemed a little no longer than usual. Speeches are usually um, a little bit over an hour, like an hour and 10 minutes. This one went on for like an hour and 45 minutes. So I could tell there was a little bit of um, people were being a little, were getting a little tired. Um, a few people um, left the room probably to, to leave early because there's a lot of, you know, you'd, there'd be a lot of traffic. Um, but but yeah, I mean, everyone still seemed really supportive and um, um, really excited to see him there. What um what was kind of his theme? We again, we know what he's going to say. Did he seem to key on certain specific things? We already talked about the Carrie Lake thing. He highlighted that there was the the great graphic of her putting her hand over her heart as if she was on The Bachelor when he called her out. Um, but what was some of the themes he really seemed to be emphasizing on? Like you said, he went longer than even he normally does. What do you think he was trying to get across? Um, it seemed a lot of people have speculated on this. Um, it seems, it seemed, it seemed to me to be like a campaign speech opened up his, his speech with this video. Um, talking about how dark America is and, you know, one day, you know, there's going to be light and America's going to be great again. Um, you know, he, he hasn't come out and said that he's going to be the 2024 um, candidate yet, but um, it seemed a lot like uh, like a campaign speech. And, you know, like and, and just like any other Trump speech, it was there's a lot of rambling and, you know, talking about um, the 2020 election and um, people that weren't loyal to him. You know, talking about Mitch McConnell and um, talking about how great um, some of the candidates he endorsed were and. Um, so things like that, um, it seemed like a very typical Trump speech, but in the beginning it, it, it um, it appeared to be, uh, uh, like a, like a campaign. The room and the mood. And of course, since, since CPAC happened and now that we're talking about this, we've had the Mar-a-Lago search warrant stuff. Um, so that's probably changed this calculus a little bit, but the mood in the room and the mood from Trump, was there any doubt in anybody's mind that he's going to run? Oh, everyone seemed absolutely certain that he's going to run. Um, no one seemed uncertain. Um, yeah, I think there's a reason why he got 69% um, percent on that poll. Um, and he and another CPAC straw poll, he got 99% um, approval rating, which apparently is up 2% from, from last year's CPAC poll. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone everyone believes that he's running and um, I don't think they're wrong. Who we talk about Trump and all the other big names. Sure. It, who's somebody that maybe we're not all talking about that really seems to distinguish themselves and that the people at CPAC, that Trumpian base of the GOP, they're really talking about them. And the rest of us maybe haven't been talking about them or are missing on. Yeah. So one guy I'd say is Mark Robinson. That's someone I didn't really know of. Um, he, he gave a, a really, um, he gave a really good speech. Um, 
lot of a lot of like militaristic language and stuff like that you know like don't give up keep fighting um you know you're your soldier and all of that and um but he he really knows how to give a good speech he's really passionate um there were points where he was like just yelling into the mic you know and people were roaring like like almost on their feet the whole time um i, I say he's probably one of the the most talented speakers at um that i saw at the whole event i i, I want to look more into him because i don't really know too much about him yeah i'm familiar with him of course i'm i'm split my time i'm based out of north carolina he's a lieutenant governor of north carolina he was um, a factory worker. He went viral for going to, I believe it was a county commission meeting, might have been a city council meeting, uh, over the Second Amendment. That speech went viral, and then he ran for office and won. Uh, he's probably going to be the next governor of North Carolina. He's he's getting to be that popular. He's got some problematic things in his past, but he is extremely charismatic. He is great on the mic. Um, that's a very good catch and a very good call out because he is definitely one of those people uh, folks need to watch out for uh, Mark Robinson, Lieutenant Governor of the State of North Carolina. Folks can look him up. Good catch on that one. Let's let's circle back to where you started, though, to, to put a bow on this. You wrote about it in your piece in USA Today. You talk about the conspiracy theories. You talk about the lies. There seems to be two modes of this. There's either the really enthusiastic folks, and then there's the people that recoil but there's folks like you and like me, because I used to be like this. You know, I, I, I think we need to have healthy conservatism in this country for the country to be healthy. I get sad looking at something like this. I mean, I, there's parts of it that make me angry, but mostly it's just sad. Like, this is sad to me that people are buying into this. That seemed to be kind of the mood you had. You articulated to me from being in the room. You're walking around. You're seeing people buying the conspiracy theories. What's that sad feeling coming from? Because you're a little younger than me. Just kind of talk through that for a minute. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sad. Um, but like I, I first started getting into politics in like 2016. Like I'm I'm just a kid, you know, um, like that's that's around the, the age of Trump. Um, and so like I'm familiar with all this, but um, and I'm not really too familiar with um, a pre-Trump Republican Party. Um, so like this all seemed very familiar to me. It seemed like, you know, a typical Trumpy ev event. Um, but there was some other fringe stuff that, like, you know, I, I was a little shocked by or sad about. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm like a, you know, small government uh, freedom kind of, you know, conservative. And, um, you know, just and just seeing this stuff about conspiracy theories and um, and like these populist booths um, like um, America's Americans for National Re Renewal um, and stuff like that. Um, just just seeing like the philosophical change was bothersome to me um jack basobiak had a cpac panel where he talked about the new rights um talked about you know more focus on you know stuff like industrial policy and um the right needs to stop being afraid of big government and all that and um it's i'd say that bothers me more than the than the sort of crazy flashy things that you see at cpac just the like philosophical undercurrent. Yeah. I think what bothers me the most is just the fact that nobody has the ability to look at something like a victim. Like I mentioned before about Googling, I'm being a little facetious, but that, that like you didn't even bother to look up who this guy is. That's the part that bothers me. It, it, it's not that you, cause I, people get sucked into stuff and people like, I, I can understand that how that happens, 
But it's like you don't you, you don't even do base level stuff like just checking seeing who a guy is. That that kind of stuff bothers me. Uh, Chris Schlock, this is great information. Really appreciate your time today. The pieces out of USA Today. We're linking to it uh, till we get you back because we're gonna. I, I found it fascinating. You talking about not remembering a pre. Um, my first election was 1998, which is the Clinton impeachment election because they impeached him in January '99. So I wonder. I've always wondered like how much that affects how I view politics. Was that era? Um, and I'm sure your politics are affected by this here. We'll have to have a chat about that sometime soon. Till we get you back on Herdtel again, though, let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on, my friend. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Chris Schlock. That's S-C-H-L-I-K. Um, you can find me at USA Today just by searching my name. Um, and uh, I recently, <clears throat> I recently um, wrote an article for Free the People on uh, tariffs and uh, in China. So you can check that out too. I'm guessing China is not a popular thing at CPAC. Not at all. I figure. Uh, Chris Slock, great work interning at USA Today. He's writing all over the place. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors. We'll definitely have you back, buddy. Great information. Appreciate the time. Thanks for working with us on the schedule. It took us about a week to get this in there. And we'll talk real soon, my friend. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.